Greyhound to trap one. Over. Welcome to the Trap One Podcast. I'm Mark. And this is Jason. So we're here today for a special podcast to pay tribute to the late great Doctor Who writer Terence Dix. Oh. I was at work a couple of weeks ago when uh, I got your message, actually that's how I found out that, um, that we lost Terence Dix. It felt, it felt like a real blow, very, very upsetting news. I was literally sitting at my in-law's house in New Jersey reading part of Port of Doomsday when my phone started blowing up with messages about it, and that definitely put a damper on the rest of my day. Mm. I think it's obviously always very sad when we lose somebody who's been part of the series' history, but um, it does feel like this has had a particular effect on the on the, on fandom. Uh, I think you had such a long association with Doctor Who, but I think it's quite a personal connection as well, with particularly sort of uh, older fans. Uh, you, through the books, you know, there's a time when that was the only sort of part of Doctor Who that you would physically own and hold in, in your hands and because he wrote so many of them it was uh, you know it was quite a personal connection in that way I think it's probably two things that struck people number one it's the year 2019 and he was hired on the show in 1968 or 69 mm. that means he was working on the show continuously for 50 years which I mean, how many television shows have the opportunity to employ somebody directly or freelance for 50 years? Yeah, absolutely. He had just written a piece for the Target Storybook, which is coming out this year. So it's like he was still working on the show freelance, even though he wasn't writing for the current TV series. So that's one thing. And then, of course, as you point out with the books, the novelizations, if you look at any eulogy to Terence that's come out in the last two weeks, anybody in the U.K., they all have a variation on the following sense. Terence taught me how to read or Terence taught me how to write. Mm-hmm. So he was a tremendously formative influence on any of us who were Doctor Who fans through the words in his scripts and through the words in his books. Even with the new batch of Target novelizations that came out last year, and I know, Mark, you and I did a recording for the Paul Cornell novelization of Twice Upon a Time. Mm-hmm. Even though Terence didn't write any of those books, his fingerprints were all over them, especially with Paul Cornell, whose book was a huge Terence Dix homage, if not pastiche. Definitely, yeah. It's um, that you say that that's what I've seen a lot of on Twitter. Um, uh, I think Jonathan Morris uh, wrote a tweet where he said that he'd he'd said to. Terence Dix at one point, my, my books, uh, I see them as novelizations of, uh, you know, stories that, of your stories that were never made, uh, to which he said, Terence Dix replied, well, I want some royalties then. <laughs> <laughs> That's a very nice comment, and that is a very Terence Dix answer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. So uh, we contacted uh, a lot of the other sort of regular Trap One contributors, um, and the great people at the Hoovers, um, who organise conventions here in the UK, have kindly sent us an interview from Hooverville Convention with Terence Dix. And we've also got a special mini-episode of my favourite Doctor Who podcast, which is The Highlanders. Uh, so we've got a lot of different contributions in this one. Uh, so we can hear a couple of these now. Uh, so first of all, Chris Newman. 
My reaction upon hearing the news of the death of Terence Dix is one of real genuine sadness, coupled with a thankfulness that we had the benefit of his craftsmanship and his storytelling skills for the Doctor Who universe. He occupies two really unique positions in the history of the show. Firstly, as script editor, working alongside Barry Letts to produce some of the most amazingly involving and engaging Doctor Who stories of any era. When faced with the changes to the show brought about by Derek Sherwin and the exile of the Doctor to Earth, he realised that um, essentially there were going to be two stories that he could tell, either Alien Invasion or Mad Scientist, but what depth, what creativity he brought to, to that limited scenario. And he made the Pertwee era a real standout in the history of the show. But it was his work as a target novelist, which was almost evangelical. He brought to life so many of the stories that we of that generation were not able to view. There was no DVDs, there was no VHSs. The only way we could experience Doctor Who stories was through the target novelizations. And because Terence was so prolific and had written so many of them, it was his voice that gave life to so many doctors. He provided clarity and he provided a wholesome story where perhaps the scripts had lacked he did a lot of tidying up but he also imbued a lot of characters with real life and real motivations his work provided so many young isolated kids who never really had access to what we would understand as fandom with a connection to Doctor Who it was his work as much as anything that really kept fandom going and ignited the passion for Doctor Who in so many people, myself included. I'm not really qualified to evaluate his writing or to evaluate his work from a literary point of view or a technical point of view. All I can tell is that his work was so readable and so accessible that it made reading a pleasure. He didn't teach me to read, but what he did do is he taught me the joy of reading. He taught me that craving that you really want to get your hands on the next book in a series. It was his work that opened up the possibility of the written word on the page for me. For that, I will be forever grateful. And then I had the privilege of meeting him some 15 years after starting that journey with the Target books as a 25-year-old in 1998 when I actually started working with his son and his son, probably fed up with me talking about how much I admired his dad, said, look, why don't we get together one night? And so we did in a pub in Hampstead. And the one thing I found about Terence was his willingness to share. He didn't get upset and he didn't get irritated by the fact that I was, you know, behaving like a complete fanboy. He embraced that and he relished it. He knew the effect he had on people like me. And I think it provided validation for his work, but I think it also provided him with real satisfaction that he had had this impact, that in some ways he'd become the hero as much as the Doctor had. 
he we talked and bear in mind this is in the era before dvd extras so i got a real insight into the way doctor who was produced into the difficulties of writing for the show in the choice of casting some of the some of the actors it was an amazing night terence was generous he was compassionate he was witty he had an evil sense of humor that was amazing to behold but more than anything else he was the real consummate storyteller he knew i was hanging on his every word he enjoyed it but he gave so much it was a memory that is worth more than more to me than than any gold or silver when the final history of doctor who comes to be written terence dicks will be as large a figure as any who've gone before or since he was a wonderful storyteller. He was, to me, an amazing craftsman who made stories and plots hang together and have a real value and a real interest. With his books, he engaged young minds, he engaged this young mind in a way that it had never really been engaged before. For the pleasure of reading those books, for the pleasure of watching the show, Terence Dix, rest well, sir, and thank you. Hello, it's Keith, just talking about Terence Dix, who I consider to be the author of what I call my first ever proper book. That was Day of the Daleks. It was... I was very young at the time. I was so proud of myself reading it, and now, in retrospect, it was the beauty of his prose that just took me through it. He was probably became my most uh, prolific author, even in my house now, if I wanted to count all the books I've got. Terence Dix will still be the most um, prolific author I own. And he basically turned me into a reader. From that time onwards, Target books became the regular thing I would read. Get, I was a slow reader in those days, and I would still get through one every three weeks or so, which wasn't bad for a kid of my age. And in a lot of ways, I owe him a lot because I read voraciously now, and I put it basically down to him. I was quite shocked when I heard he died because he never looked like an old man. He never acted like an old man. In my head, he was sort of still in his 50s. All the like the interviews we see of him now on DVDs, sort of immortalised as sort of like as a personable, pleasant, funny man who I think we're all going to miss quite a lot. So thank you very much to Chris and Keith for those recordings. I think... As I was telling you offline, this is the all-star edition of Trap One. Everybody's coming out to talk about Terrence. Yeah, there's been a, yeah, just a fantastic response. Uh, and I think that's like we're saying, it's, it's you know, the effect that the, the news has, has had on everybody. Uh, so I think, as you said, he first started working on the show in the late 60s um, under the, the kind of previous regime of, of Peter Bryan and Derek Sherwin, where he's taken on as the junior script editor. And he quickly became the senior script editor because I believe Peter Bryant had one foot out the door. Yeah. Uh, and his first kind of big piece of work, I think, after script editing, The Dominators and the Crotons, um, is, is being given the 10-part epic War Games, which finished off the second Doctor's era. With a five-day turnaround time to write the thing, I believe, where he had to bring in uh, Malcolm Hulk. And the two of them just spent a long weekend co-plotting this story, which, through serendipity, I watched it again last year, 
even though it's ten parts, and even though there's a, there's a lot of repetition and there's a lot of capture, escape, capture, padding loops. Number one, these are two guys who write padding very, very mm. well. So even as the story is going nowhere, you're being entertained in the way it's which in the way in which it's going nowhere. And then, of course, you have the mythology. You have the introduction of the Time Lords, and each part, each of the ten parts, reveals a little bit more about the Time Lords until they show up in part ten. So this was written practically on the fly on the back of an envelope, but it's almost perfect in its way. Yeah, it's it's yeah one of my uh, favorite Second Doctor stories, and as you say, it sets so much of the mythology, which uh, which then you know the series has run with for for the next kind of forty five years, hasn't it? Um, so. Courtesy of the Hoovers, uh, we've got uh, part of a interview that was recorded at Hooverville 7 on the 5th of September 2015 with Tone Sticks uh, about this period of oh, his wow. career. And the interviewer was Chris Drake, um, so we can hear that now. I'd eventually been intended to replace uh, Derek Sherwin, but he didn't get the job that he wanted to move to, so he stayed, but, which was quite useful. Um, because I could actually sort of train them for a year, you know, so uh, that, that was quite handy. And uh, it, was, it was a rather peculiar, it was a peculiar setup uh, in those days. Um, well, years later, um, the, the, the script, when I arrived, the script situation was diabolical, you know, they were in a terrible shape, they hadn't got scripts, they hadn't got scripts on time. This, I think, was not unconnected with the fact that they spent more time in the BBC bar than they ever did in the office. And uh, at the end of the, well, at lunchtime, early lunchtime, about 12, a little head will come round my door and somebody would do the walk on my, you know, come and have a do gesture, and we go off to the bar, where we stay from 12 to 3. And then we'd come back, and occasionally a bit of work was done in the afternoon, there's not much. And when six o'clock came round and the bar opened again, they walked to the bar again. And, you know, being young and innocent, I thought that was how you made television programs. But it isn't, believe me. And they were in, you know, a diabolical state. I mean, the sort of thing, I mean, we talked about the war games earlier. Derek came into my office one day and said, Terence, we need a ten-part Doctor Who. You've got to write it, and we need it next week. You know, and that's for no two, two of their projects have fallen through, you know, a six-partner and a four-partner. And uh, so I knew I couldn't cope with it on my own, so uh, I called in Matt Culk, and uh, Matt, Matt and I did it together. But, you know, the rate of the script every few days. Um, Matt was a, a brilliant touch typist. Matt was immensely well organised. Um, he's the only person I know who, when he wanted to become a writer, went and learned to touch type. I don't know any other writers who can touch type. They're all two-finger hunt and peck people like me. I mean, I'm a very fast two-finger hunt and peck typist, you know, but I never had any training. And, and Matt, you know, we used to... Uh, we wrote them round at Max Flat, and I would slide up and down the room and we'd discuss a scene, and then when we got it hammered out, I'd recite it, and Matt would go, bruh, 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 and it would appear on the page, you know, so we, we managed to get, get it all done. But it was a funny thing about uh, the, war, the war games. I mean, that's uh, an oddity in a sense, because I developed a sort of going, you know, occasions like this, I developed a sort of line on it, you know. Um, and I would say, well, you know, you should never do a 10-part Doctor Who, it's madness, you know, which is quite true. 
And I said, what did I open? Well, you've got World War One, then a Roman chariot comes out of the midst of the of the fun. And I think the end's quite good when the doctor is put on trial and uh, condemned to exile to earth. But in between, there's a lot of chasing and running up and down the corridor, which is true, in fact, to some extent, because we have to fill the time off. But um, recently, uh, it was uh, republished on DVD, you know, in a cleaned-up, uh, improved version. And uh, the Doctor Who magazine reviewed it, you know, at some length. And the review started off, Terence has been talking rubbish about this show for years. Um, it is, in fact, a very good show. Every episode is good. And, you know, by and large, people, people who've seen it now for the first time, people seem to like it, you know. So um, I, I thought afterwards we must have written the show we wanted to like. You know? I mean, my feeling at the time was, uh, you know, like the five doctors, well, we got away with it, you know. But, uh, but it's, it's very crucial, again, because um, I think I'm right in saying it's the first Doctor Who story to introduce the Time Lords. Mm. Was that your, your idea? No, it's all about the Time Lords. Um, Derek Sherwin said, well, I was talking, talking with Derek at some stage, he said, well, he's one of these people called the Time Lords, isn't he? And if you see the early shows, it's been long established that the Doctor is some kind of fugitive from his, from his own people and that he possibly, uh, you know, took away the TARDIS without proper permission, as it were. So there was that as a background, but um, Mac and I developed the Time Lords, um, you know, in, uh, as a sort of superior race, you know, who watch the universe, and, uh, you know, there's a lot comes out of the Doctor's trial when he says, um, you only observe the, the evil of the universe, so I feel I have to fight it. And so you learned a lot more about them. Um, for a long time, they were uh, only sort of, uh, they would appear as enigmatic, masterful figures and send the doctor off somewhere on a mission or whatever. Until uh, Bob Hope, after my time, mind you, Bob Holmes came to write The Deadly Assassin. And I remember Bob Holmes saying to me, I can't stand these, these super races who come in and uh, sort everything out. He said, Star Trek is full of them. They really piss me off, he said. So um, he, he uh, you know, showed the dark side of Galifias and was conniving, scheming uh, Time Lords and you know, like sort of a nascent Italy. And I really like that. And in all my books when the Time Lords appear, they're Bob's Time Lords, you know, they're Bob Holmes' Time Lords. Thanks again to the Hoovers for that, and we've got uh, we've got more interview clips to, to play as well. So yeah, I think yeah, the sense that you get um, uh, about Terence Dick's work as a script, I, I start that again. You get the sense hearing about Terence Dick's work as a script editor is what a really good sort of technical, pragmatic writer he is. Um, when he and Barry Letts came in and, and took over, it seems like they stopped the office tradition of spending more time in the BBC bar than they did in the Doctor Who office. Uh, it's, it seems like from the stories their predecessors were very fond of doing. As Terence said, his primary motivation as script editor was to not have to air a test card at 6pm on mm -hmm. Saturday night. And if you look at the history of the show through seasons 4 and 5 and 6, in the Trout era, there were always scripts falling through. There was always last-minute stuff going on, like part six of the Dominators being cancelled and being replaced with 
the a nothing episode in between Dominators mm-hmm. and the Mind Robber. And then you also had, I think, a one or two week lead time between transmission. My favorite part is that when they aired part three of Underwater Menace, and Zaroff has his famous uh, line, nothing in Javerl could stop me now. At the time that he said that on your TV screen at home on Saturday night, they had not yet taped yeah. part four. <laughs> so when that cliffhanger went out, they literally hadn't even finished the story. It was literally a cliffhanger. So <laughs> under Terrence and Barry, you finally have a series that knows at the beginning of the year what every story slot is going to be. And it provides stability. And not only that, you almost have the same five writers each year for each of those five story slots. You have the Barry Letts, Robert Sloman one. You have the Bob Baker and Dave Martin one. You have the Robert Holmes one. You have the Malcolm Polk one. And these are all Terrence's friends, Barry and Robert Holmes and Malcolm Polk. And you finally have a story that has a story arc and it has recurring characters. And even though Terrence on the audio commentaries for all the Pertwee stories makes it seem as if these stories happen accidentally and as if he had nothing to do with the best parts of the story, while he's saying that, you're watching the text commentary on the bottom of the DVDs. And come to find out, everything that was good about those stories was his suggestion or his correction. So this guy was almost single-handedly the glue of the Pertwee era. And of course, he's self-deprecating about it, and he won't admit it. But it's all there on the DVDs. I would say that probably 60% of that era's success is on him, as much as it's on Pertwee and Barry Lepp and everybody else. Yeah, absolutely. I think self-deprecating is the right word, isn't it? He's where the, A lot of his phrases you keep hearing, like you say, is, oh, we just didn't want to get the test card uh, being broadcast um, instead of the show. Um, and he always says, oh, we got away with it. We just about got away with it. But obviously he was... They were more than getting away with it. The, the you know the Pertwee era um, restored the show in in the ratings and in kind of the public consciousness um, where it'd been struggling a little bit during the, the Troughton era, um, and uh, sort of arguably ob- obtained a level of consistency uh, of quality of stories as well. I think which uh, which the series hadn't had before then. Um, I was listening to the audiobook of of Who and Me, which is Barry Lett's autobiography sort of memoir about writing Doctor Who. Um, and he talks about the having discovered the Bristol Boys um, through, a, through a script, I think a comedy script that was about their National Service days. Um, they, they went away and they came up with the original ideas for the Clause of Axos. But it was just like five times bigger than it needed to be. So Terence Stick sort of sent them away and said, well, work on this. But every time they started working on it, they came up with more ideas. So in the end, the, he, the way he worked with them was he would just take all the best stuff out, write a scene-by-scene scene breakdown for them, and then say, right, go and write the script for this. Um, and I think that's probably what makes him such a great person to adapt a lot of the Target novels, is just that kind of natural, instinctive uh, you know, kind of idea of structure and what's going what's gonna to make a good story. And that's especially true when you read the Clause of Axos novelization. That was one of many books... And again, I was born in the early 70s, and I was born in New York. I was born the day that Invasion of the Dinosaurs Part 1 was being taped. So I didn't see the Pertwee era live. I discovered it more than a decade later. And I mostly found it through the books, reading the book first, and then seeing the story a couple of years later, whenever it cycled around on 
PBS. So Claws of Axos is a terrific book. The plot makes sense. In your mind, the special effects are not ridiculous Bayglow CSO. Hmm. It's a pretty scary novel in print. And the political satire that underlines it, especially with the character of Chin, it's really funny and it's really clever the way that Terrence writes it. Now, as acted and directed and produced, it's probably not the Pertwee era's finest hour. But in book form, it's certainly Terrence at the height of his abilities. Absolutely. Um, and we can also hear another part of the, the interview from Hooverville 7 uh, where he talks about how he got into writing the Target books and, and what that experience was like. It's, uh, it's a peculiar sort of thing, the Doctor Who books. I mean, I ended up writing, you know, nearly all of them, as probably people know. And <coughs> I think people feel that this was some fiendishly cunning plan that I worked out, you know. But in fact, it was all like so much of my life. Pure luck and chance. I mean, when it started, um, I was a sort of uh, unofficial editor. I would uh, I would do it um, whatever they wanted. If possible, I would do it myself. If not, I would try and find someone else to do it. I would encourage, you know, writers to do their own. And when we started off with like a handful of them, you see. There were about a handful of writers, about half a dozen or whatever. And gradually they all dropped out. Because scriptwriters don't like writing um, writing prose. They find it much harder work. And also the book money at that early stage was considerably less than they got for, uh, for writing a television script, you see. So the books, uh, there were fewer and fewer writers and the books got more and more popular. And eventually I finished writing one a month, pretty much. And I did, I think I've done about 70 over the years, you know, but that was, uh, that was over quite a long time. And um, gradually they built up and became, you know, bestsellers. And I had this wonderful period in my life when it rained money on me. Large checks were arriving by every post, and I thought, right, that's it, you know, and I took my family to America and, you know, lived the high life. And then what I'd forgotten was, we, we all do this in the business, this is pre-tax money. And all of it, I mean, one of my, I had an Indian accountant, first of all, and he said, when you are getting a cheque for a thousand pounds, Mr. Dix, you must say, how lucky I am to have this 600 pounds. And I was never able to do that. <laughs> so after the money poured in, the tax bills poured in, by which time most of the money had gone. So, you know, I always say I was practically ruined by being rich, but it took me a long time to get them back in balance, you know, so that the tax bills were roughly equating to the income. So, but, you know, it was great while it lasted, it really was. So you've recently been writing your top ten Terrence Sticks novels for your blog. That was the first thing that came to my mind on the day that he died. And you have to bear in mind that I am the world's laziest blogger. And my last blog post was literally two and a half years ago, during a time that I was reading all the Target books in publication order, and I was doing these very deep dive, perhaps overly deep blog posts on all the books. And I got about two-thirds of the way into my post on Planet of the Spiders, which is one of his earlier 
like one of his more richly detailed books. And then I just stopped because reasons. Mm-hmm. So he's sitting there, I'm sitting there, and Terrence Dix has died. I'm like, I really need to get the band back together. And I need to at least post something as to what Terrence Dix meant to me. So I have been more recently reading the books in publication order. But because it's Jason and I can't do anything easily, I grabbed a book at random on Memorial Day, which is a big public holiday at the end of May here in the States. And I just happened to grab The Stones of Blood, which is one of Terrence's late 70s books when he was doing 10 a year. And it is far from his most richly detailed work. But I so enjoyed reading that book in one day that I decided I was going to continue on in publication order. So I went all the way through the, the rest of The Key to Time and Douglas Adams' era and the Christopher Bidmead era. And I was on for Doomsday, literally, when I heard that he died. I had done a rather long review of Power of Pearl, which I did not put on my own blog, but I sent it into Robert Smith for the Ratings Guide. Now, Robert, of course, has many projects going on at once, and the Ratings Guide is not updated in real time. So some of the reviews that I sent him have been you know, in the queue for quite a while. But Power of Pearl, he put on the Ratings Guide right away. So the review was there, and it was hyperlinked. And I figured, I am going to do what Terrence Sticks would have done with his 1990s novels. I am going to recycle a post and make a new post out of it. So I posted a three-paragraph eulogy to Terrence, and then I recycled my recently available review of Power of Pearl, which ended up on my top ten list. So I put that post up, and for my blog, it got very good feedback, which is to say three comments and 30 views. And I decided that now I'm going to do a top ten. Then someone else on the Doctor Who Target Books Facebook group posted another top 10 list. But the Terrence top 10 list that was posted on the Target Facebook group only had one novelization, and the rest of it were TV scripts or or what have you. So I decided, my blog being Doctor Who Novels, I'm going to do a top 10 list of Terrence's novelizations. Now the problem is when you do any top 10 list, you're talking about a man who probably wrote 80 to 90 Doctor Who books. And I've read maybe 20 of them in the last three years, but the rest of them, some of his books, as good as they are, I have not touched in literally decades. Like, I know I read Shakedown when it came out in 1995, and I have not cracked the cover since. So I couldn't do a real top 10 where I take every book, and I rate it on a scale of 1 to 100, and then I take the top 10 ratings. I had to be somewhat arbitrary, and I had to be somewhat opinionated, and I had to rely only on the book's that I'd read recently. So I had just finished the Kinder novelization at that point, so I put it in the top ten. And I had reread Blood Harvest over the summer after reading State of Decay, the novelization. And I said, wow, Blood Harvest is much better than I recall it being in the summer of 1994. So let me put Blood Harvest on the list. And then everything else kind of slotted into place. And then, of course, it's one in the morning, and I have to be up at work at six o'clock, and it's too late to go to bed. So let me make it even harder. I put an honorable mention for each of the top 10. So it's really a top 20. And then I put four honorable mentions in at the number one slot. So I put under my top 10 post what really is Terrence's top 25. But then ask me in two years after I've read the rest of the novelizations, and I'm sure that list will change. Yeah, I'll, I'll put yeah. links to uh, to this in the show notes. But um, I, I was reading your top 10. It, it totally makes me want to reread all of these books, to be honest. Uh, yeah, and again, I was a little arbitrary and I was a little capricious. I'm sure if I were to read each of the 90 books in sequence, Kinda probably might not be in the top mm-hmm. 10, 
just because the other books that are more detailed. And the one comment that I got, literally one comment that I got on the blog, is that I should have had Day of the Daleks at number one. I had it as honorable mention for number two, I think. Mm. But that's a fair point. That's certainly one of his best books. And objectively, it's probably better than Blood Harvest. But any top ten list needs to be a broad sampling. I just can't put ten books that were all made in the early 70s. I had to do his entire catalog. I think Blood Harvest is a fair choice for top ten, even if in more analytical terms, it's probably top 40 more than it is top 10. But for my purpose, it's a top 10 book, and there it is. And at, at number four, you've got The Invasion of Time. There's something that occurred to me, I, I was looking through this a little while ago for a podcast, um, and there's a particular line in that um, which um, Denise Sutton's very kindly uh, done a reading for. The strange thing about the Vardens was that they weren't quite there. It was as if they existed in some other dimension, some other reality. The astonished High Council saw three tall, shimmering shapes, cloaked and hooded figures with the vaguest hint of features under the hoods. But somehow it was impossible to get a really good look at the Vardens. Something about them turned away the eyes. So thank you very much to Denise for that reading. Uh, So yeah, what occurred to me about that one is... Obviously, the the Vardens are not a very impressive effect in the TV show of uh, the Invasion of Time, but the way that they describe yeah, <laughs> the way described there, not only are they much creepier and more mysterious, the description that you can't look at them because something turns away the eye is is basically the the perception filter that we get in the modern series, isn't it? Um, and it kind of makes you think: is that something that's just um, embedded in the mind of Russell T. Davis and Stephen Moffat um, so that when they bring the show back, it, you know, it's, uh, you know, I'm not saying that they've, um, they've copied that obviously, but such an influential writer uh, and that's such a great idea for, for a kind of a sci-fi technology. Don't know if that's not just, uh, just embedded in this unconscious to, uh, to reappear when they're writing for the show themselves. No, no, that makes perfect sense and I'm going to start adopting that theory because Terence's language certainly has permeated the new series. I mean, for one thing, he almost had the chapter title Escape to Danger in just about every book. Yeah. And when the new Target books came out last year, I think you had Escape to Danger as a chapter title in at least <laughs> three out of four of those books. Uh, and one of them was Escapes to Dangerous, which is a nice little play mm-hmm. on words. But one of the other recurring motifs that you find in Terence's novel is uh, the doctor is giving orders to somebody while he's at gunpoint. And Terence always writes some variation on the line, such was the authority in his voice that character X felt compelled to obey. And that's basically a great summary of what the doctor is. The doctor is a force of nature, and whatever he says, people listen. And that carries through into the characterization in the new series. So if Terence had this line in a book that the showrunners have read a hundred times, which they probably have, I would not be surprised that this idea somehow embedded itself into the new creator's minds and they wind up using a variation on it. Because they've used so much else about Terence's uh, words and philosophies on the show. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and particularly yeah. the, the Day of the Doctor, I think they, uh, Stephen Moffat uses both wheezing groaning sound um, and from the making of Doctor Who, the never-cowardly, never-cruel line as well, doesn't he? Which was also 100% terrorist, that's right. Yeah, this, uh, I mean, this has got 
One point of distinction that it is, I think, quite genuinely the first book about Doctor Who, you know, about it as a television show, going into how it's made in the background. You look in, you know, science fiction sections down there, you're knee-deep in books about Doctor Who, you know, they're incredible numbers. I mean, I read one or two, but I can't keep up with them. And um, this, at least, was the first. And this was this one was largely the um, inspiration of Malcolm Hulk, Matt Hulk, who was my friend and uh, and really my mentor in uh, in television. Um, in Amer in American cop novels, which I'm very fond of, detective stories, they talk about in the police about you having a rabbi, and the rabbi is somebody senior who likes you and looks after you and gives you a hand, you know, for the your career. And Matt was my rabbi, you know, I got into television through him, I learned about it through him. And, um, you know, we continued to work together for, for a long time. And Matt, Matt was always looking for a way of making money other than writing television scripts. I don't know why, but he felt that was too much like hard work. And he would publish guides and directories and that kind of thing. And I think Matt came up with the idea of this, with the, with the making of it. So, <coughs> there are two editions of this, and the, um, the first one is largely Matt, and the second one is largely me, you know, but it's still basically the same idea. And it is, it's something to genre, you know, is all you can say about it. We also have some reminiscences from Jason McLaughlin and Simon Fox on the Doctor Who Monster book and the novelisation of The Dalek Invasion of Earth. Terence Dix, um, well, what can you say about the man? Um, I think everyone's got those same kind of memories um, as a kid, going into like their local bookstore, picking up the Target books. Um, I know I used to always like collect them. I used to always like pick them based on the cover art, but then soon got to notice that a lot of the books were all written by the same person. I mean, it's only as you get more into Doctor Who that you kind of, like, realise that this, you know, person had an actual interaction with the show. They, you know, used to, like, script edit the, the Pertwee years, and they were behind some of the, like, real icons of the show, like, you know, the Master, the Time Lords the whole exile on Earth and unit. Um, I remember picking up the Doctor Who monster book, um, which was written by him, in one of my many trips to the Doctor Who exhibition in Blackpool. And that was a treasured book. I used to thumb through that, like, all the time. And he'd have, like, a breakdown of each adventure that each Doctor had had, uh, along with all, like, the photographs that were in the book. Terence Dix wrote two novels that had a profound effect on me at a young age. In 1988, I bought a copy of the Silverbound Star Books edition of The Dalek Invasion of Earth. I was ten years old and had suddenly discovered an author who could write grown-up adventures for children. This story did not talk down to me, nor did it flinch from the gruelling horrors that the Dalek Invasion of Earth brought to the scattered and surviving citizens of this planet. By far, my favourite character was Dortmund, drawn as single-mindedly determined to do what he could to bring down the Daleks. Every time they ventured outside of their hidey hole, my heart was in my mouth. 
to 10-year-old me, it was unbearably thrilling. So number one in your list is the Auton Invasion. Which is also, as it turns out, his first novelization. Mm-hmm. And this was before he was writing 10 a year. So he had the time and the space to let it breathe. The first three Target books, I think, all came out at once, about a year after they re-released the original Frederick Muller, Hartnell-era, David Whitaker books. Mm-hmm. So the earlier Target novelizations are much longer than what Terrence had to do in the late 70s when he was the only in-house writer. So Auton Invasion begins with a very long retelling of the end of the War Games, which had not yet been novelized. Mm-hmm. And it's the third Doctor's first story. And it's also the story. Spearhead from Space was the pilot for Doctor Who in the 70s. And then it was literally made as Rose in 2005. So Spearhead from Space is the Doctor Who story out of all the others. And it's Terrence's first book. And it's really long. And his prose is remarkable because he had the time and the space to do his best job on this. And then, of course, you have the internal illustrations. So even before I sat down to think about what is my top ten Terrence novels, there was never a question that Auton Invasion was going to be number one. And there's a lot of really close runner-ups at 1A, 1B, 1C, like Day of the Daleks and Inferno and the other ones I mentioned. But Auton Invasion is probably pound for pound his best work. It's funny that we talk about Dalek Invasion of Earth because that book opens with his best line, through the ruin of a city stalked the ruin of a man. Yeah. You probably don't have any sentence in Auton Invasion that's that good, but Auton Invasion, pound for pound, is number one, in my opinion, and probably in the opinion of many of our listeners as well. Yeah, and that, that's the one I've reread um, over the last week, actually. I uh, I had big plans of trying to read sort of three or four before this podcast, um, but... Um, as it turned out, I, I only got time to read The Auton Invasion, but yeah, it really struck me. Because I think, as you said, Dave, it's not only his first Target novelization, it's the first book he'd ever written um, at all. So obviously he's written script and been a script editor, but this was his actual first novel, and it's just fantastic. It's so tightly written, it's exciting, got the humour in there, and... Uh, the, just the little moments, like the the, the moment of uh, where the Doctor tries to escape in the TARDIS, uh, Liz having stolen the key for him, and then the the Brigadier feeling sympathy for the Doctor when he realizes that he can't escape. Uh, just just little little bits like that that you don't really get in the episode, but but really flesh out a scene and and the characters, um, and add to that sense of the Brigadier growing to trust the Doctor. Right, there's a lot more characterization. Uh, large chunks are told through Liz Shaw's point of view, mm-hmm. and the scenes go on for longer than they do on television, and there's a lot more dialogue than there was on television. Now, it's possible that he was just taking a lot of extra material that Robert Holmes put in the script that had to be cut for timing, but he was able to reinstate for the novelization. That's one way of looking at it. Mm-hmm. But it's also possible that this was all his own invention, and he was making each scene longer and better. And I prefer to believe that that was just Terence perfecting an already perfect script for book form. Mm. The other thing that, that leapt out at me a little bit is, is, is first the first time he describes the TARDIS dematerialization sound here, he calls it a groaning wheezing sound, not the more familiar <laughs> wheezing groaning. 
And a point that I want to make about Terrence Dix is that line is so familiar. Even Terrence himself made fun of it in some of the new adventures. Mm -hmm. Everyone knows wheezing, groaning. But the genius of that two-word description, think about what other ways you would use to describe the TARDIS materialization sound. And then you have the new adventures and the missing adventures and the eighth doctor adventures and the past doctor adventures, which come out in the nineties and the two thousands. And Terence wrote for almost all of those lines. And you have other younger authors who have a more high tech or a more literary bent. And you have a lot of writers trying to rewrite what the TARDIS materialization is going to sound like. And Kate Orman in Left-Handed Hummingbird, which came out in 1993, has a very good description of the TARDIS dematerialization without saying wheezing or without saying groaning. But a lot of the other writers who tried to come up with their own alternate description ended up with a very long, overly wordy, run-on sentence, complex descriptions, mm. when the only thing that you need to say is wheezing and groaning. So David McEntee, who, very good technical writer, very good plots, but he certainly was almost the crown prince of run-on sentences in The New Adventure mm -hmm. and The Missing Adventure lines. In one of his last books, he tried to come up with his own version of what the TARDIS materialization sounds like. And it just goes on for way too long. And I'm vamping as I try and find the sentence in my recent review. And when you read this description of his, you're like, now I can see why Terrence Dix is so beloved. Because all he needed to say, he said in two words. Mm. And they are the perfect words. According to David McEntee, this is what the TARDIS sounds like when it materializes. A rushing, hooting noise, as if all the demons in hell were moaning in agony. Wait, what? <laughs> uh, no, uh, no offense to David McAfee, very good books, but after you come up with wheezing groaning, you don't need to rethink that, you don't need to rewrite it, and you don't need to use the word hooting or all the demons in hell moaning. Mm. So that's another example of Terrence Dix. He doesn't do run-on sentences. His prose is always economical and evocative, even if it's not literary. This is a guy who just wrote memorable sentences, almost without trying. Mm. Yeah, the only other description that I, I can think of off the top of my head is is the songwriters say uh, sort of elephantine, don't they? But that's it. It doesn't capture it. I mean, it does sound a little bit like an elephant trumpeting, so that's not a bad word. Yeah. But wheezing and running is the word that sticks in the imagination. And it's it's the closest description, isn't it? It's uh, because it's a, it's a word unlike anything. Well, the sound unlike anything else. It's the uh, it's the scraping of a house key against a piano string slowed down, isn't it? So it's like nothing right. you're ever going to hear in in nature or in any other context. Yeah. Don't get me started, you know. There's, there's a lot to tell about it. One of my favourite stories, though. Basically, um, they asked me to write, to write another story, which they did from time to time, you know. Mostly, I think, when they got desperate and they needed somebody quicker than I was. And I told them this idea about Morbius, the great, the evil time board, um, and uh, he crash-landed on a planet and he's got 
servant who is devoted to his master, and the, ma and the robot saves the head and the brain, and then goes about trying to find to put um, a body together. And there are lots of crashes on this planet, so he goes to all the wrecks and takes a bit from this creature and a bit from that, you see, and uh, ends up with a terrible hodgepodge. And uh, I, I wrote and delivered, I wrote the scriptures, you know, they like this idea, and I delivered the scriptures. <coughs> and then I went away on holiday. And I deliberately didn't leave any contact address because I didn't want anybody bothering me, you see, and I thought things were more or less timed down. And then when I came back, I said, ran up Bob and said, how's he going? And he said, oh, fine, fine, very well, and uh, how are uh, the scripts going? He said, well, there'll be one or two little changes, he said. And I could tell, you know, by his tone of voice that he was being shifty about it, so I said, send me some scripts, Bob, and... Uh, he said, well, you know, they're not, I said, send me some scripts, and so he did, he sent me some scripts. And when they arrived, of course, you know, they were scarcely recognisable. So I rang up Bob and said, what's going on, you know, what's all this about? And he said, well, it's uh, Philip Kingsflip, who was a new producer, didn't think we could realise the robot, he didn't think we could do it properly. And he insisted on it all being changed, and uh, I had to rewrite the scripts. And fair enough, you know, I mean, I've done that sort of thing myself in the past, you know, I mean, these things happen. But I said, well, look, it's, uh, it's a good, you know, I'm not saying it's not a good script, Bob, but it's not my script, it's your script. And I said, I'm going to take my name off it, which is kind of the ultimate sanction, you see. And uh, he said, oh, no, don't do that, don't do that. No, I said, I'm taking my name off it. And he said, well, what name do you want to put it out under? And I said, I don't care. Put it out under some bland student. <laughs> and uh, when the Radio Times came, it had got the Raymond Morbius by Robin Bland, which is uh, one, and a, he's one and only incarnation. And uh, basically, that's it. You know, these things, that's about the only time I've ever had anything like that in a fairly long career. But, you know... Script writing is not a profession, not a profession for the oversensitive in many ways. And um, the other thing is that, in spite of, as I say, the fact that it's not really my script, it's Bob's script, I still have the copyright. And any money, any fees, any money, anything that show earns, I get. So <coughs> that's a great consolation. <laughs> but you know, it's just one of these things. So, uh, having moved on from the script editor job, uh, leaving the, the show along with John Pertwee and Barry Letts, you see Terence Dix continued to provide some uh, scripts for Doctor Who, the first of which well, he left the, the incoming production team with Robot, the first story for Tom Baker's fourth Doctor. And he created the tradition of the outgoing script editor writing the first episode of The New Doctor. Yes, uh, and told them it had always been the tradition, didn't he, I think? But, uh... <laughs> and he was, he was the first one to do yeah. it. <laughs> but it was a great way of getting a paycheck out the door. Yeah, and his characterization of the fourth Doctor is, is perfect, isn't it? The, I think it's something you don't talk about a lot, uh, people don't talk about a lot with, with Terence Dix, is, this, is the humor in his scripts. Uh, they're always packed with a lot of great lines. Um, I think Robot, the, the the especially the early stuff, the immediate post regeneration stuff with Harry Sullivan, and then when he's trying all the different costumes on in the TARDIS, 
Um, and uh, he, he, the brigadier says something like, it's, we're supposed to be a covert organisation. And he says, do you think it'll attract attention? And uh, the brigadier just says, it's a distinct possibility. It's just yeah. possible. <laughs> <laughs> yes. It's, it, it's uh, yeah, I mean, also, his even his novelizations are very, very funny mm. because when he doesn't like a story, he starts harshing on it. Yeah. And it's very funny to see him making fun of the story as he's adapting it. But yeah, Robot is a hilarious script, part one at least. And he has the perfect actor in Tom Baker to play that sort of otherworldly figure. So Robot is not the most complex story, but certainly part one is about as funny as it gets. That's it. And then from there, he, he wrote The Horror of Fang Rock and State of Decay, which uh, we have another interview clip uh, from Hooverville 7, courtesy of the Hoovers, um, of him talking about working on these two stories. What happened was that I told them the story about vampires, and uh, that was fine. They like, and I've written I know, a couple of episodes at least um, with Romano. In a, was it Romano? Yeah. Or was it, it would, would have been Sarah Jane Smith, I would have thought. In no. Oh, like it was vaguely Romano. Yeah. 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 And um, suddenly again the. Bob, I told him, I think Bob phoned up and said, yeah, Bob Holmes phoned up and said, look, we've got another crisis. BBC is doing a big prestige serialisation of Dracula with Lawrence Olivier playing Van Helsing. I mean, you can't get any more prestigious than that, you know. And they have issued an order that we are not to do a vampire story on Doctor Who, because they said, people will think you're making fun of us. And so we, you know, some crisis, I had to go and see Bob and we discussed, well, what are we going to do? And Bob says, I've always wanted to do a story set on a lighthouse. And I said, I know bugger all about lighthouses, Bob. And he said, go and buy the boys' book of lighthouses and find out. Which is more or less what I did, you know, I did some research and uh, researched it. And in the great hurry, you know, rushed, because uh, again, you know, we've lost writing time, in the great hurry, rushed out the whole of Fang Rock, um, which, you know, uh, was uh, done in, uh, in Birmingham, all in studio, you know, there's no actual location by a director called Paddy Russell, and apparently it was a fairly sort of troubled production because... Um, I think Paddy didn't like the show much, and uh, Tom Baker and Leela at that time weren't getting on, though they basically became better friends. <coughs> and, uh, but anyway, you know, we got a show out of it, and that was my feeling. But later on, um, again, rather like with the war games, when Fang Rock was, came out on DVD, and it's now one of the most highly regarded things, you know, that I've ever written. People love it, you know, and I'm, I'm highly delighted with it. I can honestly say, I'm not just saying it's because I'm sitting next to Terence. Horror of Fan Rock is, is, is a masterclass because it's to write a story which is just set in virtually one room. Well, no, it's a lighthouse, not one room. It was, it, and to make it so tense and so, um, you know, just riveted to the television, it is one of the best. Tom Baker, Doctor Who stories. Well, you know, as I say, it came out of a crisis, you see, like the war games, like so many other things, like, you know, like the five doctors. But, of course, speaking of the vampire one, they did eventually... Yeah, um, at some stage or other, um, 
I think John Mason Turner was sitting looking through a pile of scripts, labelled scripts we never did for some reason or another, you know. And uh, he, the only one he liked, apparently, was, uh, was uh, the vampire one. And uh, he asked if, you know, they asked if I would like to, to write that again with... Um, it was with Lila. Well, no, yes, it yeah, was. The final version was with Lila. Yeah, it was Romana and... Yeah. But that one was Romana. Yeah, yeah. Because I remember there was something about changing the colour of Lila's eyes because yeah. they put uh, contact lenses on her and hadn't worked or she didn't like them. So the flash of the light had changed her eye colour or something. No, but, you know, again, as I say, that came out of a crisis and uh, has had a very happy result over the years. But as I say, eventually they did make um, State of Decay, which yeah, was, was right. the vampire, um, the, uh, what was it called? The, the, the Vampire Mutations was the, was yeah, the I first wanted, one. Yeah, that's right. And so, the, uh, I, didn't, I didn't really hit it off with the script editor, Chris Bigley, you know, so uh, we, that, that was a fairly sort of troublesome thing. And he wanted to, uh, we eventually settled on State of Decay, which I was never... I preferred the vampire mutation, but um, he said it's giving away that it's vampires, you know. And I, I remember I said, look, you've got a village ruled by some evil force and people are found dead in the woods with bite marks in their necks. The audience are going to work out that it's vampires. I think a fairly early stage, but he wouldn't have it. So uh, there you go. Yeah. I read somewhere that he wanted some of the gothic... <laughs> Overtones sort of toning down a bit. Yeah, and he, he wanted, and that, no, there's, a, there's a lovely story about this, which never happens to writers. Um, but I, I know it's authentic because I have a, a Chris Bigby hates me telling this story, and I don't blame him for a moment. He rewrote, it was directed by a director called uh, Peter Moffin, and who also directed The Five Doctors. And uh, Chris Bigby, you know, without telling or consulting me, rewrote chunks of it, making it more scientific. Mm. And he gave the revised script to the director, Peter Moffat, who looked at it and said, what's this rubbish? I want to tell his script back. Mm. And since they had to put it all back to where it was in the first place, which is a, a glorious thing for the writer, you know. I was lucky enough to meet him um, back in 2007. Um, there was a celebration of his work at the National Media Museum in Bradford and he was signing along with the release of a special hardcover book that um, had been released regarding the target range and um, there was a Q&A where he discussed his work and I remember he was especially proud of being the producer of his version of Oliver Twist for the BBC for the classic serials back in the mid-80s. Uh, and then we watched um, State of Decay, which they showed uh, in the screening room. Um, and Terence sat, like, in the middle um, amongst the fans. And vividly remember that when the screening had finished, he didn't get up, he didn't grandstand or anything, but he kind of, like, in his own way that we've all seen him and how he used to talk on the DVD extras and stuff, just casually turned round over his shoulder and said, that was quite good, wasn't it? And got a ripple of applause from the audience. And I think that's what Terence Dix was. He was an extremely humble person, 
um, but so important to the history of Doctor Who, and it's a, such a shame that you know he's uh, passed on. So thank you very much to Jason for that. Uh, and then the Five Doctors, which I have a huge fondness for this story. This uh, this was only the second pre-Sylvester McCoy story that I ever saw. Um, I got it on VHS after the death of the Daleks. So this was the first time I'd seen uh, Patrick Troughton, Tom Baker, or Peter Davison as the Doctor. Um, and it's just uh, it's, it's a story I, I love to this day. Partly it's nostalgia, but partly I think it's just, just a brilliant story. And for me, Five Doctors was, in a sense, my introduction to Doctor Who. I, I started watching the show, and I ended up reverse engineering the date. The very first time that I turned the TV on to watch Doctor Who was November 23rd, 1984. Mm-hmm. I was 11 years old in the sixth grade, and my friends, one of whom was the friend that I just spent the weekend with in North Carolina uh, doing something else, but he stopped watching Doctor Who years ago. I'm still, of course, hooked 35 years later. So the very first story that I watched was part one of Time Flight, and I watched about 45 seconds of it and said, this is ridiculous, I'm not putting it back on. Hmm. And my friends yelled at me to put it back on again, so I came back a few days later. PBS was showing one part 25 minutes a night. I came back in time for Arc of Infinity with the part two cliffhanger where the Doctor is killed. And I was like, wow, this is amazing. Then I went away for another week, and then I came back in the middle of Modern Undead, which is the first time that I learned about Time Lords and Regeneration. So a couple of weeks after Modern Undead, they circled around to The Five Doctors, which they aired in four parts with sort of arbitrary cliffhangers for parts one, two, three, and four. It took a long time before I realized that Five Doctors actually went out as a 90-minute omnibus so that the cliffhangers were invented for the American PBS market. But I watched the four parts of Four Nights, and it was the very first time that I'd seen the first Doctor, then the second Doctor, and the third Doctor. And, of course, my friends had to explain to me that because of regeneration, the first, second, and third Doctors became the fourth and fifth. And then, probably about a year later, because PBS is viewer-supported, you have to have pledge breaks every few, every few months where they interrupt the story and they have talking heads in the PBS studio asking you to call in and pledge money so Doctor Who can stay on the air. So as one of their Pledge Drive Week specials, they aired The Five Doctors, all four parts, or what they had purchased as four parts on a Saturday afternoon. So they showed part one, and there's a 20-minute pledge break, then part two, et cetera, et cetera. I was not home, so I set the VCR to tape two and a half hours of Doctor Who, thinking that two and a half hours was going to be enough to catch all of Five Doctors plus pledge breaks. So I get home, I watch part one, fast forward the pledge drive, watch part two, fast forward the pledge drive, dot, 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 get to part four. We're three quarters of the way through part four. Rassilon comes to life, tells Barusa, you still seek immortality? Yes, I do. Take the ring. Barusa puts on the ring. Others have come to claim immortality through the ages that has been given to them and shall be given to you. And then the faces on the side of Rassilon's tomb light up. And you realize what's about to happen. And then the tape cut out. Because two and a half hours was not long enough. And I missed the last ten minutes of the Five Doctors. And it was years before I saw it again. But Five Doctors is so good. And every line is so quotable. 
But I watched that tape. I watched three and a half parts of The Five Doctors probably every week yeah. for the next year and a half, which is what you do when you're a 12-year-old boy and your only interest in life are baseball and Doctor Who. And I probably have The Five Doctors memorized minus the last 10 minutes thanks to watching my incomplete videotape over and over and over again. But that's Terrence writing a perfect scene for every doctor, and he's got all the monsters in there, and it's just a remarkable bit of work. And because it's an anniversary story, I don't think it's as beloved as something serious as Horror of Bang Rock, but it is a great anniversary story. Yeah, definitely. I, I was the same because I, I think I Death to the Daleks and the Five Doctors, and they were the only two I had for a long time, so I'd, I'd happily watch them every week. And something that occurred to me last time I watched it is that it along with the three doctors, which obviously turns to take script editors, it sort of taps into something that the Marvel Cinematic Universe does now, that, that sort of thrill of seeing these well-loved characters that you've watched individually meeting and teaming up. Um, just, and not always getting along. Yeah, and it, and it occurs to me that's something that's way ahead of its time because, I mean, the Marvel movies are the only movies that really do that. Um, uh, you know, and this, this, was, uh, this was on TV, uh, which there's, there's virtually no crossover of, of TV shows, but this is the same TV show, you know, kind of having different eras meet because uniquely, you know, you've got the same characters played by different people or, you know, uh, a revolving door of companions going through um, and allies and villains. So it's it just occurred to me, it gives you that same kind of thrill, I think, when, when the Doctors meet. Right, and because it's Doctor Who where nothing ever goes right, of course, you don't have Tom Baker, so you have to use a clip from Shada. Mm -hmm. When I watched the actual Shada uh, a few months ago as part of my read-through, I watched Shada as well as reading uh, the novelization. When you watch that scene, the beginning of Shada, where the Doctor and Romana are punting down the river, you almost expect that scene to end with the time scoop taking them away. Yeah. And when the scene does, I went, wait a minute, this is not the right scene. And then you realize, I'm so used to seeing this in the setting of The Five Doctors that it's weird seeing it the way it was originally filmed with the scene ending in a very different fashion. And then when we were flying to Europe uh, last month to do our Amsterdam slash Brussels slash London vacation, on the airplane flight out, they had on the Seatback TV on demand, they actually had five Doctor Who episodes that I could watch. So they had the first four episodes of Jodie Whittaker's series, and I watched The Ghost Monument again, and I was kind of underwhelmed, which is a story for another day. Mm -hmm. But then they had The Day of the Doctor, so I watched that for the first time in several years. And even though Day of the Doctor is a good story, and it's Stephen Moffat celebrating his era and bringing three doctors together, but that story desperately, desperately wants to be The Five Doctors. And I think I found four or five different verbatim quotes from The Five Doctors recycled into the day of the Doctor script. So even when he's not writing for the series anymore, Terrence is still this huge figure, and everyone is writing for Terrence, whether consciously or unconsciously or subconsciously. But day of the Doctors is basically the five Doctors with different actors, isn't it? Yeah, the um, the one that uh, they immediately thought of when you said that is the you've redecorated, I don't like it line, <laughs> isn't it? <It's>, uh... <laughs> and I laughed out loud when I saw that on the airplane in the, in the middle of the night on a red-eye flight. <laughs> It's, it's, a, it's a great line, and it's so good that you can just recycle it wholesale, and it still works. Uh, and according to the Complete History volume on the Five Doctors, it was it was Terran Sticks that insisted on having K-9 and a Dalek in there because he knew that they were two of the most popular things with children. 
Uh, I think JNT and Eric Sayward were keen to have the Cybermen sort of front and centre, but um, Dix found them quite boring, so yeah, he was keen to uh, to, to bring K9 back and, uh, and have a Dalek in there as well. And then you get Roy Skelton, who does probably his best Dalek voiceover work in that one scene with the with the Dalek trapped in the uh, metal car. Yeah. Roy Skelton is, is great. I mean, I'm sure he taped that in probably 45 seconds, but he does great work. Yeah. And it's great to hear K9 again. It's great to hear the John Lee's K9. Definitely, yeah. I have that on my desk at work now. I have I bought the Talking K9 at Forbidden Planet in London. So now at work, whenever I have a tough decision to make, I ask K9, is that the right thing? And I'll tap K9 and he'll go, affirmative, master. Because K9 is now a permanent part of my office. Brilliant. <laughs> uh, and the other thing that read in the complete history was uh, in his original outline, the, the black-gloved figure that's collecting the doctors is known as the player, which occurs to me that's something that he kept at the back of his head for his, his BBC books later on when you have the, the idea of the players. Oh, that's right, that's right. I didn't pick up on that. It's quite, it's quite a tale, um, the five doctors. Um, and uh, I, the last convention I went to, I mean, I say, I, I have got a story about the five doctors, which you are about to hear. Um, but one of the people who featured in it, one of the protagonists, is Eric Sayward, who was a script editor. And... Uh, I realised at the last convention I went to, I had to tell the story in which Eric figured with Eric sitting next to me, which was <laughs> somewhat embarrassing, you know, but uh, he seemed to accept it quite happily. Now, the basic five doctor's tale is that uh, I was at a convention in New Orleans, and the phone rang in the middle of the night when I'd been to a party the night before, wasn't a very good state, and the voice said, hello, Terence, this is Eric. And I said, I don't know anybody called Eric, you know, I was in a very bad mood. And this patient voice said, yes, you do. Eric Sayward, script editor of Doctor Who, because he was one of my successors, as it were. And he said, we would like you to write the anniversary special. And, you know, I said, oh, great, you know. Um, and Eric and I, I, at that time, I was script editing the classic serial. And uh, Eric was on who? We were both in the same building, Union and Threshold on Shepherd's Road Green. So I said, look, when I get back to work on Monday, I'll come down and see him. Which I did on the phone the following Monday. And I went down to see Eric and uh, I said, you know, I was very pleased to hear about this. And uh, he was a bit, I mean, uh, when I'm telling this story with him not there, I say shifty. But telling the story with him there, I said, uneasy. <laughs> I kind of softened it. Um, but uh, he, he was a bit shifty, and he said, well, it's a bit complicated, Terence. Um, he said, um, we've actually got Bob Holmes to write the anniversary special. And he's in fact writing a story, completing a storyline for us now. Um, but unfortunately, he's not getting on well with the project, and in particular, he's not getting on well with John Nathan Turner. And um, we're not sure that it's going to work out. So he said, what I thought we'd do is we would uh, ask, let, get Bob to finish his storyline, ask you to write a storyline, and then when they were both done, we would decide which one we wanted. And I was outraged at this, you see, and I said, look, 
that is no way to treat a writer like Bob Holmes. And I say, come to think of it, it's no way to treat a writer like me either. And I said, no, it's out of the question. I said, look, carry on with Bob if you can, because you couldn't do better. I think I always thought Bob was the best scriptwriter on the I said, get, get, work with Bob if you can. If you can't, and he's definitely not doing it, then you know. And um, Eric, um, so Eric agreed to that. Well, he had no choice, but that's what I said. And a um, couple of weeks later, he phoned me up and said, in, in a very distressed state, and said, um, Bob Holmes has had a huge row with John Nathan Turner. He's walked off the production. Please, will you write it? So I said, yes, fine, very happy to you, see. Except that I had about half the usual time to write it in because of all the faffing about that they'd uh, gone on with. But anyway, I, uh, I, I started writing it, and uh, I wrote a storyline, which they eventually accepted, and I started writing the script. And I started, um, I wrote the first draft, and around the time I just about finished it, <coughs> Eric phoned up. I mean, Eric had been chasing me all the time. You see, that's what his job as a good script editor. And he said, how are you getting on, Tunch? And I said, oh, fine, Eric. I said, I've finished the first round. And there was a little silence, and he said, oh, my God. And I said, Eric, that's not the reaction I hoped for. I thought it would be well done, you know, and all that, you see. And he said, I don't know how to tell you this, but Tom is not going to be in the production. Tom is Tom's withdrawn. There was a mix-up between Tom and his agent, and Tom's decided he's not going to do Doctor Who anymore. And uh, so often happens in a crisis, you know, my brain went into overdrive. And I said, look, have you got anything where I can get him captured by the mysterious obelisk? And then later see him released. And Eric said, well, there's a show called Sharda, which got cancelled because of a BBC strike. And he said, I think there's some usable footage in that. And uh, so that, and I said, well, fine. Give me a, a, a place to get him captured, a, a place to get him released. And I said, I'll chuck the bugger in the time warp and he can stay there for the whole of the show. <laughs> which basically, if you see the show, is what he does. And uh, out of that, I mean, it so often happens in television, you get something better out of the crisis than you originally planned. Out of that comes that lovely scene on the Thames where the Doctor is punting with Mama and uh, they're, they're chatting away and then uh, he gets captured by the audience, you see. And I think that's one of the best scenes in the show. Not a word of it is by me. <laughs> it's, all, it's all from China, but, you know, that all uh, worked out very well. So I always said it should have been called, like, you know, Four and a Half Doctors, or possibly even Three and a Half Doctors, since we couldn't have William Hartnell. Strangely but, enough, strangely enough, I think since then, Tom Bake has actually said he regrets that he didn't appear. Yes, it, it was a dumb thing to do, and I told him next time I saw him. And, and eventually he, he felt... He um, sort of got into a state of mind where he was saying, no, no, that's all behind me. And of course, when he stopped being the doctor, it was a, it was a, a nasty shock because he had a very tough time for a while, you know. I mean, I met Tom in the BBC bar sometime after he'd stopped being who? And stopped being the doctor. And, and he said, uh, I'm currently unemployable in British television. 
know, and it's unbelievable, of course, you can't stop Baker, you know, you're going to see the doctor, and uh, he found it hard to get work. So Barry and I used him as Sherlock Holmes. We did, uh, people had often been said the doctor was like Sherlock Holmes. So we suddenly got the idea, why not use him as uh, Sherlock Holmes, and we did the Hound of the Butterworld. So how, really good that. how successful did you feel that that uh, particular production was? Because I know some people... It's one of those things that I think is sort of like Marmite. You either like it or you don't. It's a bit of a... Well, because of the way it was written and because of all the sort of stresses and the fact that um, they were constantly changing uh, who I could have and who I couldn't have in it, you know, and all that kind of thing, none of which I mind. I quite like that sort of thing, you know. Bob, of course, couldn't stand it, you know. I mean, he might be properly sorted out. But it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a pantomime. But I think it's a good, enjoyable pantomime, and most people seem to like it. Most yeah. people have said that they enjoyed it, I and it was certainly a great success at the time. Well, uh, it was, I think it was the the first Doctor Who story where the book actually came out before. Yes, the book how came. Did out. That, how did that happen? A cock, well, uh, to use a technical term, it was a cock up. Um, the um, Somehow or other, the publishers got it wrong, and the book came out first. <coughs> and the BBC were absolutely furious. I was quite pleased, because the book sold like hot cakes. <laughs> People wanted to see what the show will be. But, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's done quite, you know, it's, I think it's reasonably well regarded over the years, you know. I mean, uh, my feeling afterwards, um, was well, we got away with it, you know. <laughs> I wouldn't claim much more than that. So having exhausted all of the Target novelizations, uh, the, the Virgin New Adventures came along, um, which Terence Dix wrote the second volume of, Time Worm Exodus. Uh, we can hear Simon Fox remembering this book. The second Terence Dix book that shaped my reading was Time Worm Exodus, published in 1991. I knew I was in for a treat not just because the, the dark cover of Ace, seemingly about to be sacrificed on, underneath a giant swastika, but because the name Terence Dix brought with it a guarantee that 13-year-old me knew, knew brought quality. Bereft and still mourning the loss of Doctor Who on television, I eagerly devoured this book on a very wet family holiday caravanning on the shores of Loch Lomond. I didn't do much else that holiday but read Terence Dix, it felt unbelievably adult, and I remember thinking that somehow I had smuggled into my hands a piece of maturity, unnoticed by Mum, because it came under the banner of Doctor Who. I will never forget the Doctor explaining to Ace the full horrors of the war as they sit on a park bench. Roald Dahl may have taught me that reading was fun, but it was Terence Dix who taught me that fun can be sophisticated, and that a serious message could be conveyed through adventure, more importantly, that it was not above my head. Terence Dix, you will always be a legend. Thank you very much uh, to Simon for that uh, contribution. So Time Worm Exodus also makes it onto your top ten list, Jason? I think for almost exactly the reasons that Simon just told us. So I am 18 years old in 1991, and at that point I thought I was sort of uh, growing Doctor Who, I hadn't really liked the Sylvester McCoy stories that I'd seen. And now that I was 18 and I was an English lit major my first semester of college, 
I figured that I had put behind me forever the paper-thin Terrence Dix novelizations. And then there was one other friend of mine on campus who I haven't spoken to in, in decades now. His name was Rich. Hi, Rich, if you're out there. He was the guy who discovered the new adventures. I had not yet discovered the internet. I was about six months away from Records Doctor Who. I didn't know the new adventures were even going to be a thing. And he shows up one day with the first two volumes in his hand that he found off campus at the bookstore. So I ran out and I bought them myself. And I said, oh, no, not Terrence Dix again. This is going to be terrible. So I read John Peel's Genesis first, and I loved it. And then I sat down to read Exodus. And at 18 years old, and you have to bear in mind that as a freshman English lit major at college, this is the same semester that I'm reading King Lear, I'm reading Frankenstein, I'm reading Heart of Darkness. I'm reading the all-time greats of the Western canon as a college student. And I'm reading Time War Exodus at the same time. And I'm like, this is the best book that I've read all year, Time War Exodus. <laughs> because this is what Terrence can do in 275 pages instead of 110. And he had never written any of the McCoy novelizations. This is his first time writing for The Seventh Doctor. And he nails The Seventh Doctor. And he, also, of course, also puts in the history lesson. And he has uh, uh, the Nazi characters running around. And there's, uh, there's a crazy Hitler. And just when you didn't think it can get any better... Boom, all of a sudden it's a sequel to the War Games. And like, I didn't know that a Doctor Who book could be this complex and be this good. And this is what Terrence can do when you give him the time and the space. And maybe he didn't match the peak of Exodus in his later full length novels, but Exodus is really what turned me on to the new adventures. And I'm always grateful to having discovered that book at the exact moment that I thought, ooh, I'm 18 and I'm grown up and I've outgrown Terrence Dix. No, no, I hadn't. And Time or Exodus pulled me right back in. And I'm still here today, 27 years later. Yeah, it's a while since I've read it, but yeah. I, I remember absolutely loving it. Um, and, and similar to what you're saying and Simon's saying there, it was, I mean, I was probably a bit young to be reading these. I think I was sort of 12 when they when they came out. So um, some some eye-opening stuff for a young man in there, <laughs> in that series of books. Uh, and then you read Transit a year later, and that, of course, is even more, yes. <laughs> more eye-opening. <laughs> Uh, so the the other one that I've read most recently is Shakedown, I think, when that was re-released. Was it the when they, they the BBC Books were doing some re-releases? They did the sort of fiftieth anniversary ones, and they had one for each Doctor, and then they did the history collection, and I think the monster collection, and I think Shakedown came out in the monster collection because it had the Santarans in it. And that's actually a novelization in and of itself, because Terence had written an off-license Santaran mm -hmm. story, I think for Bill Bags. And the middle third of Shakedown the New Adventure is a novelization of Shakedown the Script, which is Bill Bags taking all these septuagenarian Doctor Who actors and putting them as different characters in a different story without the Doctor in it. And I think it may have been the last thing Michael Wisher ever recorded, if memory serves me right. And you also have Carol Ann Ford playing very much against type as a mm -hmm. space vixen. Sophie Aldred's in there too. And I think Sophie Aldred's husband as well, who uh, didn't always get to act in Doctor oh, Who. Right. But he came out for, for Shakedown. Yeah, and so what is his book ended? Because they didn't have the rights to, to use the Doctor in Shakedown, the novel is is bookended with um, the Seventh Doctor. I think, does he just miss the ship taking off? 
uh, with the root in a board, and then I think meets it after the the uh, ill-fated shakedown cruise. Right, shakedown is like like I said, one of those books I have not read since the very first reading in 1995. So I have no recollection of, of what happens within it. I remember that there were complaints about it on Records Doctor Who because. At the end of the book, he basically recycles an entire chapter word for word with different character names with the exact same text, which even for Terrence was very <laughs> eco-conscious. So my memory of the book is that it wasn't popular on Rec Arts in 1995, and I have not read it since. So maybe it'll qualify for my top ten list upon a reread. But I remember very little about it as we're sitting here today. Yeah, I wrote a blog about this when... Um when it was re-released, but that's it, it's a good few years ago now, so I'm just having a quick look through it. Um, seems like I, I did enjoy it anyway. Uh, yeah, it's split into um, in, into three books, like I say, um, which uh, the, the, the Doctor doesn't really meet any of the characters from the Tiger Moth is the ship, doesn't meet any of the characters from that, which, well, yeah, which makes sense given that they look like um, Susan and Ace. Uh, <laughs> Um, yeah, <laughs> and, and, the, and the companions that he's got in this story, it's the it's the era where it's Benny, Ros, and Chris, um, and uh, they, those sort of books they'd all they'd all be split off, kind of on on separate side missions, wouldn't they? But all also working towards the the same main plot. Right. So Bernice is sent off probably on an archaeological subplot, if memory serves me right. Yeah, and I think the other two are undercover. Um, I, I, is it, is it could be that one. I'm not sure where. Is there an Ogron running a a nightclub or something like that? It kind of rings a bell, and it's sort of like it's uh, it's it's sort of a bit film noir kind of gangster stuff, which uh, which apparently uh, I think it's, it's Barry Letts that says this in uh, in, his, in his memoir is that Stone Sticks' favourite genre to read. He likes sort of like uh, Raymond Chandler uh, kind of writing, and. That brings us to Blood Harvest, which is the book that he wrote before Shakedown, which I reread Blood Harvest over the summer and put it on my top ten list because he's doing a perfect Raymond Chandler parody in the first 30 pages with the hard-boiled first-person narration. And also, I gather that Terrence's favorite movie is Casablanca. And there's two Casablanca quotes in the first 30 pages right. of Blood Harvest. So this is Terrence writing about what he enjoys – now, the other New Adventure writers are writing about what they enjoyed, which is uh, David Bowie and, uh, uh, you know, 1980s Britpop, like Pet Shop Boys. Terrence is giving us what he loves. What he loves is 30 years earlier than what the other guys were doing. So when I was reading Blood Harvest at age 2021, I didn't know Raymond Chandler. I had never seen Casablanca. So all this stuff went over my head. And reading it now as a much older man, I'm like, okay, this is Terrence doing his favorite thing. So this is, this, is, this, is, this is enjoyable, which is why Blood Harvest now qualifies for my top ten list. Yeah, I do remember that one. That one, it, it was sort of paired with, um, was it a Paul Cornell new adventure, which, which... It was the first missing adventure. Yeah, Paul did the first missing adventure, and they came out in the same month, and the plot sort of yeah. continues from one book to the next with the Gothic vampires. Opera, and the I want to say, I think the Paul Cornell one. Yeah, and it's yes. the... Uh, yeah, they... they the, the, awesome. So you've got the fifth doctor and the seventh doctor that are, um, yeah, working uh, on on sort of separate ends of the same story, aren't they? Yeah. 
and Romana appears in both books as a main character. And there's a late Time Lord who's introduced at the very end of Blood Harvest, and she goes on to be the main villainess in Goth right. Opera. Yeah. So the Virgin New Adventures give way to the BBC books, um, which again, they they turn to Terence Dix uh, to write the first one, which is The, the Eight Doctors. Uh, the thing that always sticks in my mind about this book is the, the opening paragraph. Terence Dix goes straight in with a criticism of the TV movie, which obviously uh, is the, the Eighth Doctor's first adventure. The Doctor closed the time machine with a sigh. Dear old HG, he murmured, such an optimist, such an enthusiast, especially for the ladies. The Doctor smiled briefly, as if at some pleasant memory, but then he frowned as the recent, well, subjectively recent events at the Millennium celebrations in San Francisco flashed through his mind in a jumble of outrageous images. It had been a weird, fantastic adventure, full of improbable, illogical events. He scowled at the memory of the Master, treating his precious TARDIS as if it were his own. How had he got in in the first place? Where had he acquired those mysterious morphotic powers he had made use of so freely? Useless to speculate, decided the Doctor. He would probably never know the answers now. So I think you um, you mentioned this in um, either your tribute or, or the top ten, I think, as well, didn't you? I gave Eight Doctors honorary mention at number five, only because of that one sense. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's 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 very cutting, isn't it? Um, I think again in in Barilat's memoir, he, uh, he he's quite scathing about it. I think I remember from the time that those two were interviewed to the, in, those two were invited to the premiere, uh, and they were the only two that didn't give a standing ovation to the to the TV movie. <laughs> Yeah, it was not, not, not a great movie. Not a great movie. But Eight Doctors is not a great book either, so <laughs> there you no. go. <laughs> so this is the this is the the eighth doctor. Uh, there's one last trap been left by the master, I think, which uh, erases his memory, so he he travels back through is it his memories of all the previous seven doctors to learn who he is, or he physically travels and, and meets them. I can't quite remember. What happens is the TARDIS takes over and the TARDIS takes him on a journey to meet each of his previous selves at a critical moment in their life. So he shows up in the middle of the forest scene in Unearthly Child and stops the first Doctor from bashing in the caveman's head. Mm -hmm. Then he shows up and he meets the second Doctor, I think in the middle of War Games. And then he shows up for, and right in the middle of the book is The Demons Part 6. He does an epilogue to The Demons with the Master and Miss Hawthorne. And then he goes on, and then there's a long sequel to Trial of a Time Lord with the Sixth Doctor. And then the book ends on Gallifrey, and there's a revival of Barusa, and it sort of completes the plot journey that Barusa began in The Five Doctors. And there's a happy ending for everybody. And then there's the frame story on Earth, where parents had pitched three companions, two, two school teachers at Coal Hill and a student. And in the event, they dropped the two school teachers, Trev and Vicky, who were painfully one-dimensional school teachers, Pattern on Ian and Barbara. And the only one who survived of his three 
Pitch Companions was Sam Jones, which was Terrence's idea of a precociously annoying 15-year-old girl. Hmm. And he mm-hmm. left the other writers in the Eighth Doctor series with this unworkable character. And Sam was brutalized and tortured and abused by the other writers until they finally got rid of her two years later in the books. So that was not Terrence's best work by any stretch of the imagination. Some of the stuff there that you're saying about the... Um yeah, I really can't remember the eight doctors, but but sort of fixing little bits like the the first doctor wanting to bash the caveman's head in, um, that is something as well as sort of uh, tidying things up in the target novelizations. I think one of the things he does in some of these books is he takes the season six B idea from the discontinuity guide, doesn't he? The the idea that the second doctor didn't immediately go from the war games to spearhead in space; that he was a, a time lord agent for a period. Um, which explains his appearance in The Two Doctors, where he is uh, talking about the Time Lords quite openly. He's physically older. Um, and where got... Jamie, Jamie knows about the Time Lords and the Two Doctors, even though on TV he had not found out about them until, until the War Games itself. So an older Jamie travels with the Doctor in season 6B. Yeah, so he, he sort of um, he uses this in the uh, the players uh, trilogy of novels um, for B- BBC books, um, and here we have Chris McKeon talking about the world game. This was the first and so far only explicitly season six B novel, which is explicitly after the World Games, explicitly after everything that happens in the World Games, and it says yes, the Second Doctor survived the events of the World Games. It's notable for its opening scene. Terrence Dix wrote both these stories, of course, these novels. Um, he wrote World Game, and he also wrote Doctor and the Auton Invasion, which is a novelization of, as I said, Spearhead from Space. The f- opening scenes are a reference to the Doctor's trial, and they're the same, except word for word. The difference is, in the Auton Invasion no- novelization, it says, oh, you're exiled to Earth. In the, and it said, in the World Game novelization, it says, okay, will you see, there's a neat little preface saying, okay, this is a public history record. And it's what you knew, but it, for the interest in the public, interest of the public uh, understanding, um, what you saw before was amended. For the first time, this is what actually happened. And it, same word for word dialogue until it says, "You are sentenced to death." In my opinion, that makes a little more sense. <laughs> and, and it's a really interesting idea of revisionist history uh, applied to what you see on television. That maybe what you see in, on screen in the War Games Part Ten is edited footage. Because what you see on screen is the Doctor being exiled to Earth and forced to regenerate. What if it wasn't the case? So Terrence Dix um, was, is kind of famous for stating continuity is how I remember it. Because he maybe got some things wrong as he wrote some of the stories. When people mainly talk about getting things wrong in terms of maybe inaccurate or at least not ha- as shown on screen. Interesting, it makes me wonder what if there were one day that Terrence Dix remembered that the Master was the War Chief. <laughs> but in any case, he, because of that maybe misremembering or just how he remembered, who knows, we get season 6B and then he canonizes it, at least in the novels, in uh, players and very much so in the novel World Game. And it makes much more sense to me uh, the idea that the um, um, second Doctor would not be exiled to Earth and regenerated, he would simply be killed. But maybe killed officially, and then said, "Okay, we want you as an agent." Because I, although I love the John Pertwee era, I think it's wonderful. I have never understood, outside of the reasons of continuing the series, I've never understood from a time or perspective why they would say, "Oh, well, we agree with you. There are many evils. We're going to send you to Earth, and you, you'll deal with those evils there." 
I've never understood that, why they would just exile him to Earth. Um, and it should be noted, so World Game, I credit, you know, a lot of credit to Terrence Six because he gives you a partial explanation. Well, he wasn't. He was sentenced to death, but that's whether a cover or not. It becomes a cover to allow him to become unofficially an agent for the, for the uh, CIA, the Celestial Intervention Agency. I think it's a brilliant idea. Thank you very much, Chris, for that. I think the other the other thing that that, um, that struck me is the, the the trend of trying to fix things in his work. It's carried on into his new series stuff um, in uh, Made of Steel, which was his tenth Doctor quick read book. Uh, he explains why Martha looks exactly like the the other character that Freeman Argument played in Doctor Who in uh, in Army of Ghosts. I think he uh, he explains that they're cousins. Yeah, he is very good about either fixing plot holes or laughing at plot improbabilities. So in The Power of Kroll, and you can find this in one of the recent posts on my blog, the Swampies are firing arrows. And of course, because this is TV and our heroes can't be killed, all the arrows miss. Mm. So Terrence writes rather sarcastically in the novelization, fortunately, they all missed. (laughs) And then in Warriors of the Deep, which I give honorable mention uh, somewhere at number 10 or number 9 on my top 10 blog post. Uh, There's a scene where our heroes and the last surviving members of Seabase are locked in a room while the Silurians have taken over the bridge and are trying to unleash nuclear Armageddon. And because this is Doctor Who, the only way out of the room is by crawling through the ventilation shaft. And it just so happens that one of the characters happens to have the ventilation shaft memorized. Now, I've worked in many office buildings over the years, and I can tell you nobody ever knows how the ventilation shafts are laid out. So Terrence just writes, fortunately, Ulick had a good knowledge of the ventilation shafts and was able to guide a time traveler through. <laughs> I mean, it makes no sense. And, of course, Terrence cheerfully acknowledges this as it makes no sense by putting it fortunately. So uh, that's Terrence telling you, yes, this doesn't work. Just bear with me. Uh, we'll get through it. And um, any other books that you particularly want to talk about? So you can talk about Terrence, and you can tell when he loves a book, and you can tell when he hates a book. And it's not always obvious. So Horns of Nymon does not have a great reputation because it's season 17, and the plot is a little bit silly, and some of the acting is more mm-hmm. over the top than we're used to, <clears throat> so <Soldi. laughs> But when Terrence is reading the script and he's making the book out of it, you can tell he really, really enjoyed it. So he writes this introduction to Horns of Naimon, where he gives the history of the Skarnan Empire, and he's clearly using all the ancient Greece parallels, and he goes much more into detail about Soldid as a character, and he talks about who Soldid was before the Naimon came, which is not what you think, and he talks about uh, Soldid's inner insecurities, which helps explain why on television the character is so ridiculously over the top. Mm. So you wouldn't think that Horns of Nyamon in 110 pages based on a weird story is going to be that good, but the book is really, really good. And it's the same with Pyramids of Mars, where he goes in and he writes an epilogue where Sarah Jane gets back to the present, presumably after the Hand of Fear, and reads the newspaper description of the fire at at the house. And that's all Terrence. He's that for the book. 
And it's a really, really nifty plot device where you have the journalist in 1911 writing about the fire and getting every single fact wrong. And then you have, on the other side of the spectrum, you have Meglos, where it's quite obvious from the book that Terence hated the script and hated the TV story, and on every page is mocking it relentlessly. <laughs> and certainly Meglos is a quote that deserves to be mocked relentlessly. So Terence is just the man. But even then, at the same time, he fixes things and he puts in explanations which make a lot more sense of the story. So he's both fixing the story and mocking the story at the same time. Really, really, really entertaining. In a way you would not expect to be entertained by Meglos, he manages to pull that off. Yeah, I remember that being uh, a, a very witty novel, I think. Yeah, I remember it being more, yeah. Very witty. Yeah, very funny. And, and one last instance of Terrence fixing things is The Web of Fear, where you have, I mean, I don't know Mervyn Hazeman and the writer known as Henry Lincoln personally. I don't know what's in their hearts, but if you read Elizabeth Sandifer's comprehensive uh, watch-through of Doctor Who, she does a scathing takedown of those two guys and the inherent racism and biases in their scripts. And Abominable Snowman is a great novelization, thank you, Terrence. And Web of Fear is a great story. We know that now because it's mostly been recovered. But the first scene of Web of Fear is problematic, especially for me, because there's a character named Julius Silverstein who is the absolute worst sort of anti-Semitic Zionist conspiracy character you can think of. And it's tremendously problematic. And Terence must have realized that. So when he novelized the book, he takes away the name Julius Silverstein and he makes it a much more generic, non-Jewish character. And it takes away all the implicit and overt racism from that scene. So that's Terence fixing a really, really big problem. And I wasn't even aware because I read the book first, and I never knew the character was named Julius Silverstein until I actually saw the recorded part one that was released on VHS. I'm like, wait a minute. I somehow feel like I'm being insulted here. But thanks to Terence and the novelization, that does not survive in the print. So most folks don't know how unfortunate an episode that was, and Terence fixes it. Thank you for that. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I think the other thing we've we've been very lucky is that he's been very active in fandom uh, over the years, regular at conventions. Steve Hatcher. Monday the 2nd of September was the saddest of days for Doctor Who fans. Most of us who love the show have at some point tried to write a Who story. For some, that has been the gateway to becoming a professional writer. In doing so, every one of us has been influenced by Terence Dix with his work on the television series and his creation of the concept of the target novelisation after three earlier false starts in the 1960s, Terence showed us all how to do it, although few, if any, could quite do it as well as he could. Along the way, as a stalwart of every primary school library, he taught a generation of young fans how to read. From a wheezing groaning noise to a pleasant open face to a sprightly yellow roadster, almost every well-loved phrase and cliché in Doctor Who history has come from the mind of Terence. And is only a cliché because every one of these phrases captures exactly what it is intended to in simple, concise, effective and, above all, memorable language. Make no mistake, Terence was a masterful writer. His contribution to Doctor Who has been unparalleled. He was simply the single most important writer ever to have written for or about our show. 
Terence has been our guest at Hoover's and other related events more than anyone else over the past 20 years. One Hooverville, Hooverville 7 in 2015, two Evenings With and two big screen episode screenings. He was wonderful company, both during events and outside. On more than one occasion we took him for a meal, either before or after a meeting. Our long treasure, the memory of our late friend Robbie Langton, instructing him about the mysteries of Thai cuisine, which Terence hadn't encountered before, despite his fondness for Chinese food. On another occasion, Terence's amused but patient bemusement was a wonder to behold, when another of our sadly missed late members, Kevin Chipton, congratulated him on writing his favourite target book, Doctor Who and the Cave Monsters, which was actually written by Malcolm Hulk. When Terence attempted gently to correct the mistake, Kevin persisted, insisting that he, Terence, had indeed written it. On another occasion, Terence's desperate, silent plea to put him on a different train home when he realised that he was in danger of having to travel with the very pleasant but rather intense guest actor from one of his Doctor Who television stories, who was booked onto the same train as he was. We were happy to oblige. Terence was a giant, not just in the world of Doctor Who, but in that of children's literature. Most of us were just in awe of him. It's something of a scandal that he didn't receive the recognition in the wider world that he did in ours, and a matter of pride and satisfaction that in death some of that recognition has at last come his way. R.I.P. Terence, it would have been a great privilege simply to have lived at the same time as you. To have known you a little and to have spent some treasured hours with you has been extraordinary. I was lucky enough to see him once at a convention. Um, he was on a panel at the Dimensions convention that used to run in Newcastle. I think it was about 2012. Um, and was just a natural, I think, at those things. Uh, great storyteller. Obviously, he told these stories quite a few times. Um, but, yeah, and fantastic to meet him as well. I think I got him to sign my DVD cover of The War Games uh, that I had with me because uh, Fraser Hines was there as well. So, uh, yeah, great just to get the opportunity to tell him what a, what a great story I thought it was. I only met him the one time at the second L.I. Who, Long Island Doctor Who convention in November 2014. And our good friend Eric Static was there, and he's the guy who interviewed Terrence on stage and did a, did a hell of a mm-hmm. job with it. But I finally got to meet Terrence in the viewer's room. And, of course, I'm a stammering fanboy. I've been reading his books for 30 years. And I pointed out to him that I've read his books more than I've read the books of Dickens and Jane Austen and the Brontes combined. And he, of course, was very self-deprecating and telling me that was a very sad thing. (laughs) He's right. He's 100% right. (laughs) And I got him to autograph three or four of my favorite novelizations. He's lucky I didn't bring a suitcase with with all 60 of his. But that was the one chance that I had to meet him. But I also want to talk about the audio commentaries. Mm-hmm. We are amazingly lucky that Terence recorded an audio commentary for almost every story that he worked on, either behind the scenes or as script editor. And yes, he does tend to tell some of the same stories over and over again. Like he uses the word bouffant to talk about John Pertwee's hairstyle, probably on every audio commentary <laughs> or every Pertwee DVD where he sat on the commentary booth. But... I'm an American, and we're recording this in mid-September, so I've got to talk about 9-11. 9-11. 9-11 was the same day that the first batch of Doctor Who DVDs were supposed to be released in the United States. 
So on the day that we're all sitting at home, glued to our TV screens, watching thousands of people dying at the World Trade Center, I get my Amazon package, and there's the two doctors, sorry, the five doctors, and I want to say Robots of Death was the other of the original releases. Yeah, I think so. And of course, I had to go into Manhattan and evacuate my then girlfriend, now wife, who was living not too far from the World Trade Center. So I spent the next couple of days in Manhattan, which was a horrifying experience. So we're all emotionally wrecked, and I couldn't go into work because my job was in an area of Manhattan that was sealed off. So I then unwrap the five doctors, and that's great comfort food as a story. And then I listened to the audio commentary of the five doctors, which is Terrence Dix, and he was so funny. That was one of the things, as cheesy as it sounds, Terrence Dix and that audio commentary helped me get back to normal after 9-11, 18 years ago. And I have not gone back and listened to that audio commentary again because it meant so much to me. I'm just afraid of it not being as good as I remember it at that moment in September 2001. But I know he quotes from the discontinuity guide, and he mentions what Paul Cornell says about the transmat device on Gallifrey dispensing black cloaks, yeah. which is a very funny observation. <laughs> but it's Terrence talking for 90 minutes. And, of course, he's making fun of the special edition, saying the special edition has been revised to open with corridors, and there's nothing scary about a corridor. I still remember that line 18 years later. So Terrence on audio is just as good as he was writing the novelizations. And maybe one day I'll go back and listen in sequence to every audio commentary that he recorded and pull out his best stories. But we have hundreds of hours of Terrence Dix now, if not thousands, thanks to the DVDs. And we could listen to him for quite a long time and never get bored and never run out. Yeah, definitely. I feel we're really lucky to have had him around to contribute to the entire DVD range like that. Um, I think one of the things that occurs to me is he doesn't talk that much about the writing process, does he? About He talks a lot about the editing yeah. process, I think. But he edited a lot more stories than he actually wrote. So I think he has more to say about his behind-the-scenes yeah. work. One thing that uh, that Bariolette says in, in his book, uh, and I keep quoting this, but uh, he says that uh, Terence Dix's dictum was, anything can be cut, uh, and cutting will always improve it. So probably uh, working with the sort of the Bristol boys and things like that, probably yeah. But you know, from uh, from the stories, that's uh, that's something he had to do quite a bit of. And of course, the Bristol Boys ended up doing quite well for themselves, and Bob Baker ended up winning Academy Awards for his Walls yeah. and Gromit scripts. So even with that, you have to thank what Bob Baker learned at the feet of Terrence Dix for getting him Academy Awards yeah. years later. So Terrence has all these protégés who did great Absolutely. work too. Absolutely, and uh, you know, and the fact that, like we've said, he's he's still come back. Uh, I think. The, uh, the the big hardback sort of coffee table book Dalek, um, which I think Kevin Scott and Mark Wright um, wrote the bulk of, I believe he had a short story in that, um, which I've never got hold of that book. Um, and as we said, the the Target storybook anthology, which is due out I think in October, um, he's got a short story in there as well. Uh, so we've uh, we've still got that to look forward to, thankfully. And what's funny about that is the cover design for that was recently released, and it's got all the doctors, all 13, yes. and it's got Adric, because not 
only did Terrence Dix write a story, but Matthew mm-hmm. Waterhouse wrote a story. So now, why are there 13 doctors and Adric on the yeah. cover of a book about the doctors? So that led to a conversation or thread on Facebook and Twitter. Maybe this book is about the war, Adric. <laughs> like the war doctor. But that will be the very last thing that uh, Terrence wrote for Doctor Who. So I think we're all going to be a bit misty-eyed Definitely. when we read that. Definitely. Uh, well, I think you're going to come back and we're, we're going to podcast about that anthology. Oh, you know we are. Uh, so to end with, we've got, uh, say, a mini episode of the Highlanders podcast with John Feet and Beer Lawrence Sutcliffe. So we'll hear that now. Hello. Hello. I'm John Featenby. And I'm Lawrence Sutcliffe. And together we are John Featenby and Lawrence Sutcliffe. The Highlanders. Highlanders. Hi. We're here today. Mark has invited us and many other podcasters of much more renown than us uh, to pay our respects to Terence Dix. Yeah, the late Sir Terry. The, le- the late... He never was a Sir Terence. He's not a Sir Terry. He's not even an OBE or an MBE or anything. Do you, do you think, like I like to think, that they approached him every year on bended knees and he said no? I, I, I like to think that. I like... Because I don't invest in the whole honour system, I like to think that he uh, just went, it's not for me. I would like to think that too. So buy, we'll... buy me a drink. <laughs> I I did not ever meet Terence Dix. Did you ever meet Terence Dix? No, and I didn't. Even, I don't think I ever came close. I didn't go to any events that he was at. I met one or two of the Doctor Who people, but yeah. they tended to be the actors rather than behind the scenes people. So we we, we have we have nothing personal to yeah. contribute uh, personal about, about Terence, but um, he affected both our lives, didn't he? Yeah. How did How did you first? become aware of him? Well, I, I was going to ask you the very same oh, question. Right. Well, I, I, do you know, when you say aware, do you mean aware of him as a person? Yeah, right, yeah. as a name and as an individual yeah. doing something connected with Doctor Who. That, that, that is going to be in secondary school in the mid-70s, and I think this is going to be your the same introduction you had, uh, was I got The Making of Doctor Who by Terence Dix and Malcolm Hulk. And I don't really, I can't now reconstruct how I got that because I was already and this would be about the age of 11 or 12 I guess so I was already a Doctor Who fan and it must have been through a school book club or something like that one of those ones that used to come around with the whole list of books you could get yeah yeah, I remember that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, the nice lady and gentleman at home might not be familiar with this. But that's what used to happen in the olden days. And where, where I was educated, I was at um, uh, completely unnecessary detail. I, I passed my 11 plus. I went to a grammar school, which within years became a comprehensive school. Uh, as the grammar schools were phased out. And it was an all-male uh, Catholic school in Leeds. And it wasn't rough, exactly. But it was not. It was not the Elysian Gardens. You know, the, there was a library, but it was um, it was a fairly functional library. Uh, and uh, you know, I liked Doctor Who, but there weren't any Doctor Who books. And I, I remember getting this. Uh, I, I did I have novelizations at the time? I might have done, but the, I I remember the thrill of this making the the making of Doctor Who because it had. Not just the TV production stuff, which I, to be honest, was only peripherally interested in. 
uh, although that's been monumentally important for a whole generation of fans. But it had information about all these stories I had never seen. My memory went back to early John Pertwee, um, but I had no recollection of the Patrick Troughton or William Hartnell stuff. And there was stuff about stories I hadn't seen, and it was just magical. And I thought, all right, that, that's interesting. And then, the, the, because Terence Dix, whilst neither of those names is unusual in and of itself, it's a name that sticks in your head, right? And um, I, I, it just then... It's like everything to do with Doctor Who seemed to have something to do with him. And then later on I found that, you know, my... The, the, the pivotal era for me, which was that John Pertwee stuff, was down to... It wasn't just Terence Dix. It was the, the partnership of Terence Dix and Barry Letts. Mm -hmm. uh, and that is the stuff that has absolutely shaped, shaped me. So what were your experiences? I... My, my first one was probably just through reading the novelisations, because I'm that... that was a bit younger I completely missed out on it really his involvement with the show so he wasn't a name that I knew because I'd seen it as he'd written stories or he was a script editor and I'd seen it in the credits that came later so um, my first thing was probably about the same similar age 10 11 war and as I was getting into Doctor Who and realized that there were all these stories that I didn't know but there were now novelizations of them. So it's about 83, 84. So by then there was a fair chunks. I think they probably started adapting them in the target novelizations seriously mid to late 70s. Yeah, yeah. Well, sli slightly earlier, was it 74? They, they'd done a they, few because David Whittaker did uh, Crusades. Did, um, right, Zarbi no. I, I, I think Darby. David Whittaker did the Daleks one, Bill Stratton did the Zarbi, and I've was it David Whittaker did the Crusade I book as well? Was. So but those, those three, they I were like, yeah, but they were like that was Armada or something. I think Target got those later. Yeah. But the 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 ones I was familiar with in the seventies were novelizations of stories I could, I I either vaguely remembered or was absolutely desperate to find out about. And I think you know, it's um, there's nothing really, I, 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 there's nothing really we can say that other people haven't said. But I, I, do, I do want to say it, you know, j just just because it's true. Um, he turned my generation of sort of morbidly inclined boys onto reading when nobody else was doing it. Yeah. And I, I hear people, you know, I, and I, I, I work in book retail now, as you know, and we still sell his not Terence Dick's novelisation of Doctor Who and the Loch Ness Monster. Um, you yeah, know, because... That's by law because we're in internet. It, it's the lo <laughs> it's the local one, but it's great. You know, yeah. it's a great story anyway. Terence Dix writes it really well. So there's a couple of things people say about his writing, right? They they say uh, turn lots of boys onto reading when no one else did. That is absolutely true. Yeah, and I think really for me, it, it was a transitional book into adult reading. Yeah. So it was probably the first what that would now be classed as young adult mm. literature. Yeah, that's a fair point. Another thing people say, and I don't quite agree with this, but they say he was our generation's J.K. Rowling, and I think I think he's a lot better than that because the the and, I, and this is not to shortchange J.K. Rowling, and I've read all the Harry Potter books and they're they're very very good, but Terence, the, the, there's nothing in the Harry Potter books I think that encourages you to go and read something else, right? Whereas Terence Dix explicitly said, you know, he hoped that people would read him. And then they'll go and read Dickens or something else like that. And I can I, I can 
genuinely point to stuff I read because of Terence Dix's influence. And it was like at a young age, suddenly I was reading um, Lord of the Rings, Asimov, Heinlein, Alfred Bester, Ian Fleming, Len Dayton, you know, all these things. And basically adult books, you know, but all, all of that um, stuff, it was all directions that I got sent in. I don't think that it did that for me. Uh, I mean, I did read, read and bought the books obsessively, and I got to a point where I, I could read two or three in a night yeah. on a school night and like, get two hours sleep and go to school and <laughs> through all the classes. Um, so they were, they were really important. I mean, he wrote so many of the adaptations, 64 yeah. of, of I, I, the I, yeah. classic era series. Well, that, but he also got so many other writers to get yeah. involved. Absolutely. The Malcolm Hulk and... Yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah. especially to, and to try and get people who were involved in the story to yeah. write it. Was it? I, I was always attracted to the Terrence Dix ones. I loved the Mal Malcolm Hulk stuff, and with you know with the Malcolm Hulk ones, Brian Hales or whatever, you you, you got sort of denser, slightly bigger books. But the, yeah. it was the Terrence Dix ones that I liked, and it, you know, is this is the the third thing I want to say, which is one of these truisms. You know, people talk about Terrence Dix's writing. There's always a slight sort of tongue-in-cheek attitude towards his tendency to latch onto, you know, pleasant open face and wheezing, groaning noise. and Yeah, which he, which he denied being well, aware of. Well, indeed, it's like Barry Norman and his and why not kind of thing. Yeah. But, you know, and, and I don't think to this day, I don't think I would know what a grampus is <laughs> if it wasn't Terence Dix. But, you know, th those are just individual phrases used maybe once in a book, right, per book. The rest of Terence Dix's writing, I think people neglect it. People have read, I read, uh, there's a Stephen King book called Dance Macabre, which is uh, one of his, the first go really he had. Good. It is good. And, he, you know, he talks about his influences. I think it was his notes when he was teaching writing. It was just his influences, you know, sort of books and films that had, um, uh, that, that, that had impressed him. And I remember him talking, he was going on about a James Herbert book, and it was either The Rats or The Fog. And I was like, oh, for goodness sake, you know, why? Stephen King is great. Why are you recommending a James Herbert book? You know, The Rats is basically about people who have sex and then get eaten by rats. The Fog is about people who get stuck in a fog and then have sex and then die or, you know, horribly. You know, and Stephen King justified it by saying the thing that James Herbert could do was he could write prose that did not get in the way of the story, right? So there's no, hey, look how clever my writing is. He just writes absolutely transparent prose that does not get in the way of the character and doesn't get in the way of the story. And that's exactly what Terence Dix does. And I think that is a massive skill. It's that easy reading. Easy reading is damned hard writing. Yeah. Um, you know, and it, what what people forget about Terence Dix, he went to Cambridge, he read English at Cambridge. He wasn't um, you know, he wasn't a hack by any stretch of the imagination. Um, so I think his his writing is is slightly underestimated, yeah. and obviously with the the target novels that he wrote, and I I can't speak with any authority about any of the rest of the stuff he wrote. You know, the the target novels a lot of the time he's writing other people's material, but he did tidy it up a bit, mm -hmm. and it, it always struck me that there was there was something very kind yeah, of meticulous. I mean, he, he got the, the he developed. The, the style of those target novels yeah. and got it down to a T. I mean, you all sometimes it almost feels like you could have dashed one off in an afternoon, and yet you kind of know that it requires a lot of skill to make it look like you could do that. Mm. Um, 
And I'm not, I have to be honest, none of the stories particularly stick in my mind as, oh yeah, I really remember that one. I mean, I enjoyed all of them, but none of the novelizations stick out particularly, except for maybe, as you say, those slightly denser Brian Hales, Martin Hawk, the, the very early David Whittaker ones, which were more... I haven't quite got it, although their writers were also trying to do other things. Yeah. But but he, he developed a sofa which was flexible enough to encompass lots of different writers. Um, and that's something that I think he did try to do as a script editor for the series anyway, was bring other writers in. So it's just something he carried on doing with the novelization. Yeah, I, I think with the, with the, I, I, I hear what you're saying. I mean, I don't want to sort of dwell too much on the other target mm-hmm. uh, writers. Um, but the Terence Dix books always no, felt... No, but it's his, his role, because yeah. unofficially he was sort of the series editor. Yeah, yeah, but time. you know, the, the ones that he wrote always felt to me like the, the nearest equivalent to watching it on telly. Mm-hmm. So, you know, as you say, you know, I, I remember getting a stack of them for Christmas one year when I was about 14, so I had maybe eight or ten and just chained them, you know, like, like he would binge a box set or something, yeah. you know. So the, the, that's, the, he's got that going for him. The, the, the final thing I, I kind of wanted to say about um, Terence Dix, which is just going back to his, his spell as his script editor when Barry Letts was uh, producer for the, for the whole of the John Pertwee era. Yeah. And that is just definitively, you know, kind of my time. That was my daughter, you know, I love that unit family thing. Um, going back to it, I love the the Liz Shaw stuff. That that really weird season seven when they're doing Quater Mass yeah. for a year, you know, <laughs> it's terrific. And you know, because he wrote the the War Games. But what 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 was really important, I I think, was just that that partnership he had with Barry Letts, you know. And and I feel that they're like almost a, a sort of Robert Holmes double act, you know, in that they obviously liked each other and respected each other very much, and that comes across oh, in yeah, all, I th- I think all the DVD stuff. Totally. But they're, they're, they're so different, you know, and it, it, Barry, Barry Letts always felt, and I miss him very much as well, you know, Barry Letts felt like the sort of big-brained kind, kind of, he, he was about the sort of, the systems, you know, about faiths and about industries and about politics and this sort of whole top-down interpretation of humanity, you know, whereas Terence Dix always struck me as more kind of in the trenches, you know, de- his interest was individual people and how they form, you know, the, these, I, I these massive constructs. From, from seeing them both, and it was lovely that we got the opportunity to see them both so involved with the Doctor Who DVDs and contribute so much to stories and retrospectives and overarching views of eras, that I think you're quite right, Barry Latz is, is the, the serious grand war. I always get looking and watching and listening to tactics I get a, 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 a childish sense of wonder in, in an adult who, who understands that who gets it and wants to keep that and puts, um, enjoys putting it across and understands what people enjoy about those things and I think the you mentioned before that the, the making of book was the first one that was, that's probably the one I would pick rather than a novelisation as something that I really remember. I, I had the, I think from a second-hand bookshop, I got the original version of it, which had a John Pertwee cover, and it was reissued in the mid-'70s with the Tom Baker the, yeah, and the Target logo that, on That's it. the one I had, yeah. And, and that was a really important book for me because it was, the, as you say, it was the first one that looked behind the scenes as well 
as fleshing out other things um, and sometimes going off on really wild, wild things because it's um, they wrote the name of the doc the doctor's name in it which is this complex mathematical <laughs> formula which, which part of me has always wondered is it a genuine formula or is it just <laughs> nonsense of like oh let, let's put velocity over time <laughs> e- equals so the Reynard's number kind of thing and you're meant to go oh that's just rubbish <laughs> um, so that was a, yeah I think that was a really sort of important book and I do think his partnership with Barry Letts is one of the great ones with all due respect to Philip Hinchcliffe I think he is very influenced by them and his era I think really what they did with re reimagining the show but keeping the core elements going with the beginning of the first year is something that lasts really all the way through until probably the first John Nathan Turner series so the last Tom Baker one when it, when it gets a big overhaul again and although some of those elements which carry on I think it, it's a little bit of a different show then um, the script editors it, are more leaders and the producer's role is one to sort of in many ways just hold the BBC back whereas Barry Letts and Terry Get- Terrence Dicks had, had worked it was it wouldn't have been the same if they weren't working together um, which I mean he, we know him obviously talking novelizations and script editor for five years but he also wrote a few stories outside of that for people beginning as you said we're is it uh, is it was Wargame his first one or was the one? I, th- I think he'd done some. Un- he'd done he'd done some uncredited stuff in oh one of the Patrick Troughton ones, who, which escapes me momentarily. But I think yeah, uh, it, it was him and Malcolm Hulk on Wargame, yeah. so that was his first one. And then there's about sort of half a dozen or so in the Tom Baker era. Uh, it was there's not even that many, is there? There's Robot, um, Brain and Morbius, which he didn't like what Robert Holmes did. Which is insane because it's a brilliant, <laughs> brilliant series. Uh, Rain Horror, Fang Horror Rock. Fang Rock, uh, The uh, State of Decay. Yes. Have we missed one there? I think State of Decay was his last thing until Five Doctors. Five Doctors, yeah. Uh, so I, if you, yeah, cho- choosing, uh, we, we should think about winding this up now because the yeah. nice, nice lady and gentleman at home have plenty other. Um, dare one say better things to do with their time so we're, we're just, just wind it up what's your what's your high points um, of, of, his, of his writing for the show when he wasn't the script editor I think it's got to be horror of Fang Rock I'd like to go with Brain of Moyes but because he himself wasn't happy with it yeah. I think I have to go for horror of Fang Rock horror, I mean they're both lovely stories horror of Fang Rock is amazing isn't it? it's one of those ones where, you know just written under duress in you know and it's almost like Sapphire and Steel you know the the mm. that that sort of cramped field fit, and the the Tom is fantastic. It's like all that don't shoot till we see the green of his tentacles, and things <laughs> like that. It's um, really quick. It's one it of is, actually yeah. that is one I remember as a novelization, thinking this is really quite creepy. This is proper gothic horror the way it, it's written. Yeah, it's good. There's a there's an audio book of it written uh, read by Louise Jameson, which is is terrific and well well worth your time. Yeah, I, I would have chosen ha- Horror of Fang Rock had you not gone for it. You bagged that one, so I'm just going to have to go for the utter ebullient joy that is the Five Doctors. <laughs> it's, it's just it's just mad, and I love it, and would sit down and watch it any day of the week. Yeah, yeah. kind of nice that he got to write that as the twenty fifth, and they went, could we get it? 
Terence Stakes. Um, I think I think, I think I think it was the 20th lol. Or 20th. Yes, yes, yes. yes. sorry. So not facts, so lol, facts. Come on, facts. Sorry. Yes. Um, but yeah, it's nice that he got an episode like that to write. And, uh, yeah. I think, I think Five Doctors is a fitting legacy. It is, it is. A bit, a bit of everything. Yes. So I, I think what, what I'm going to do is go home and watch the horror of Bang Rock and raise a glass of Dandelion and Burdock to the memory of Terence Dick's uh, massive influence and so much gratitude from me. Yes. They're very sad that he's gone. Yeah. Uh, we won't ever get to hear him say Bowie again. Thanks for that, lol. Okay. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you very much for listening. Cheerio now. Bye for now. Bye. Thank you very much to John and Lawrence uh, for that very special mini episode of The Highlanders. Um, it's a fantastic podcast. I definitely recommend uh, subscribing to that one. I'll put a link in the show notes. So, yeah, we were just saying, Jason, um, it's, uh, I think, as we said at the start, really, there's been an almost universal outpouring of, uh, of, of appreciation for Terence Dick since the, since the sad news that he died. I am sorry that I didn't get to know him better than that one four-minute encounter back in 2014, because I read all these eulogies that came out on the day he died and the day after. And I follow a lot of big-name Doctor Who writers and actors and podcasters and convention organizers, and they all posted their memories of him. And just to a man, everybody had really positive things to say, and there were some really touching stories in there about, you know, people who were 13 and showed Terrence their own 13-year-old fanfic and he was giving them encouraging feedback. This is a guy who, by all accounts, loved being part of the show, loved going to cons, loved meeting the fans, especially young fans, and he would listen to anybody and he would talk to anybody. And we know this, of course, from the fact that he wrote for the show for 50 years and recorded all those hundreds of hours of commentary tracks. He was very I – think, I think he could say that he felt lucky to be part of Doctor Who, and he loved being part of the show, and he loved meeting the fans. And again, I'm just sorry that I only had those four minutes with him because everybody had really, really touching stories, which I cannot hope to match. And that's a tremendous loss now that he's not around anymore, a tremendous loss. Yeah, I don't think there's anything else to say other than that. It's, uh, it's, 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 a, it's a massive loss to, to Doctor Who fandom. Um, but we we're lucky to have had him for so long and and uh, for such such great contributions, I suppose. And we have the books. We'll always have the books. I think he did about eighty or ninety of them. And we're always going to have mm-hmm. those DVD commentary tracks. So, in a way, he's never going to leave us. Well, thank you very much to everyone who's contributed to this podcast: uh, Keith, both Chris's, Simon, Jason, Steve, John, Lawrence, and Denise. Special thank you to the Hoovers for the interview from one of their excellent conventions, um, as well as their annual Hooverville convention. They also organise the Big Finish Days, uh, so it's, it's well worth checking them out. Thank you very much, Jason. Yes, thank you for having me on this all-star edition of Trap One. And we all came out and we all talked about how much we love Terence, and hopefully we don't have to do a eulogy like this for a very long time. Yes, fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. Thank you very much for listening as well, and goodbye. The doors closed. There was a wheezing, groaning sound. 
and the TARDIS faded away. 